Badlands. Explain those Badlands. That's a hell of a name. I'm back. Hello, everyone. I'm still um, getting, I don't have the chat up yet, so I can't see who's here. That's okay. I'm here. For processing. Oh, it is. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Guys, welcome to part four of the Fannie Willis disqualification trial. Today is going to be the day that they offer proffer proffer uh the text messages that we kind of went through briefly on daily the other day uh that trial should be starting up here around 1 p.m we've got the uh i've got the case in the background monitoring it uh looks like we might have to go with washington post feed because i don't see uh judge scott he he doesn't generally schedule them i haven't seen him schedule one he just goes live when the court goes on the record so it, it should be on the youtube i have it pulled up too Okay, so while we're waiting for that, uh, I'm going to put Ash on the spot and let her give a rundown of where we're at in this case because she's the, what I'm going to officially deem her the resident pro se litigator in uh, Badlands because she's a badass. Huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm learning, learning what I can and, and, you know, telling you what I think based on what I'm learning, but I'm not a lawyer and I don't have any law school, so... Everybody calm down. Um, means you're more than qualified. Tuesday, uh, we had we had uh, the dramatic conclusion of Mr. Bradley. He and then after Tuesday, we got the text messages. Right, so Phil Holloway put out the text messages. Megan Kelly broke them on her show. Uh, the guys on DPH on Wednesday talked um, about them as well, and so the people can now see what uh, you know. There's the the ambiguity of what was going on with Bradley texting Merchant and saying, you know, cryptic things? Well, it's not super cryptic when you read the text the text messages. He was helping her bring a case. Um, so I think that's interesting. Uh, we are not expected to hear from witnesses today. The judge said uh, that they did not have to have witnesses present. Sadow asked that in the last hearing. And he is going to hear their cases for why he should reopen evidence and, uh, you know, potentially allow uh, additional witness testimony. I don't think he needs it. I think he's probably heard enough. There are also other pending motions um, in the matter of, you know, disqualification that he's expected to hear today as well. And we don't, I don't think we entirely know what all of those are. So um, should be interesting. But I want you to recap for everybody the DeSantis stuff. Okay, so before I do that real quick, um, this just dawned on me. Today is not about admitting the text messages into evidence. They're already admitted, aren't they? Um, No, the cellular data. Right, today's about cellular data. If I said text messages, I meant cellular data, so I apologize for that. No, I said text messages. Oh, and then you were so I was I misspoke there. Again. Yeah, these text messages are already in the on the record. Now is the cell phone data to show that uh Wade was pinging his cell phone. You know, he'd get he'd get the booty call at like 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. By midnight, he'd be at Fanny's place, according to cell towers, and then he'd go back home at you know 4 a.m. Um, yeah. you know, it kind of reminds me of uh go ahead, go ahead. Well, there's two specific dates that the president put in his motion, and that was President Trump's motion on the cell data. There's two specific dates where they're uh, alleging, the president is alleging that that the cell data disproves their testimony. 
And then in their response to that motion, they didn't address those two specific dates. They just kind of tried to disprove the cell analysis thing as a whole. So that's where we're going to hear some back and forth on that. And the two dates should be interesting, you know, in terms of how they um, tie to things like the text messages and where we knew they were. Like there's a, a pretty solid record of where um, Fanny and, and, and Nathan were together on specific dates. So we'll see some of that, but the two specific dates and how that analysis was conducted to make the assertions that are made in the motion is what they're trying to get the investigative witness in to testify to. So there should be, you know, there, I would expect to hear foundation questions and, you know, if, if foundation is challenged, then, that opens the door for them to call the witness to say how these this analysis was made. Okay, I think so. Now to uh, the the Jeff DeSantis thing. Uh, so this was something that Breitbart dropped yesterday, talking about this Jeff DeSantis guy, who I believe, I think his official title is Deputy District Attorney. I think I'm not a hundred percent sure uh, on his official. Know. But, uh, you know, Red State, we covered on Badlands Daily this morning. Red State uh, had an exclusive out today that, you know, Fannie actually shared uh, an office space with um, uh, Nathan Wade's attorney, Andrew Evans, and Cook and Connolly, which also are involved in this case, or not in this case, uh, but involved in um, the DNC operations there in Georgia. And so it kind of sounds like you have this compound now where you have, you know, Fannie's campaign. Uh, as well as, um, you know, Nathan Wade's attorney, Andrew Evans, and the Cook and Connolly gang, who, uh, let me let me pull that Red State article back up, because I think it's worth it to go um, through this as we're, you know, waiting for this trial to kick off. And uh, <clears throat> it kind of, you know, I don't want to say it, it validates my theory, but it kind of offers more support to what I was suggesting, uh, you know, earlier that, that this was designed to kind of quote unquote implode um, <clears throat> exclusive location of Fannie Willis campaign office is another link to DNC operatives. And we're not going to rehash the whole thing, but you can see um, this is the, the building right here that has Evans law and cook and Connolly sharing with Fannie Willis. And what's, what's key about this is that Fannie Willis used the incorrect zip code and omitted the word Northeast under campaign forms. So as if to, you know, subvert people from looking this up and Obfus being able to that. obfuscate. What do you want to, what did I say? Subvert? Subvert would work. No, too, you right? were, you were right. I was just adding. Oh, I, was just okay. add, I wasn't correcting you. I was just adding. Not everything is about that. you, Brian. I'm going to clip that. You were right. Ash said you were right. Yeah, uh, just, just clip the one, the one snippet with none of the context. Just real quick. You were right. That's that's all it's going to say. Just you were right. Ash saying you were right. It'll be my new favorite clip behind this one. Everybody knows you never go full retard. I'll just have to manage that one. Um, but anyways, jumping back into this, it says Charles Bailey, the Georgia Democrats 2022 lieutenant governor nominee, is an attorney with the firm of Cook and Connolly. Now, Charles Charlie Bailey was the one that earlier in this whole court thing, he was the one that um, Fannie was prosecuting his opponent and uh you know it was obviously she she was her entire office was kicked from that investigation uh by a georgia judge because it's a huge conflict of interest uh and i don't even think the judge knew at the time that they were sharing uh office space for their campaigns their respective campaigns 
Um, and Bailey, I believe it's no Ryan Locke of the lock of lock law is another attorney that's based at that address. So that's three. Now you have Andrew Evans, Cook Connolly, and uh, lock lock law. That's the name of it. Lock law uh, and is another attorney based at that address. Lock was quoted in a vice article in February, 2021 regarding the possibility of Willis prosecuting Trump and his crew on Rico charges. And what Locke said in that article was quote, Rico became kind of a joke among lawyers because everyone thinks it's Rico and it's never actually Rico. Uh, I think it's legit. Um, yeah, I don't know what, what they're getting at with that. But anyways, it's it, this is going to be a, a wicked web of corruption, collusion, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just fascinating. <laughs> so I think that's a that's a good question is how far is this going to ripple out? Right. The so so the more evidence is presented, the more people seem to be implicated and um, how how you know what how wide is the net going to cast? Right. I hope super wide. Well, everybody's seated. We still don't have a judge yet, but everybody else looks to be in the courtroom. We got Nathan Wade. Still no Fanny. No Fanny. No Fanny. I don't expect we'll see her. No, of course not. She doesn't yeah. want to be this uh no fanny in the courtroom you are not allowed to have fanny in the courtroom uh you got all the other attorneys there i huh. object you would object what do you object over no fanny in the courtroom no fanny in the courtroom your honor i object <laughs> i heard that in my case it's devastating to my case that is such <laughs> movie that's such a great movie classic movie right there all right so uh we're just waiting for the trial to kick off again they're gonna go over the proffers for the cellular data um i i i really so i don't know how this works do they just go up there because like i remember the proffers from curling v when when um when uh uh what's his name from from voter ga ricardo davis when his attorney got to do the proffers um all he got to do was go up there and basically say what he wanted to say and sit down. There's no cross or anything to that. So yeah, I don't, you're I don't just making a representation to the court. So the judge asked for proffers with re regard, definitely with regard to the cellular data and any witness testimony. So they'll go up there and they'll say, this is what we want to put in. This is what it's going to show. Uh, and I think in the case of President Trump, we want you to reopen evidence to allow this witness. Now, they might have decided that they don't need that. I mean, you know, so I, I don't know. I don't know that we know what we're going to see for sure. Yeah, this is this will be interesting. Again, like sands through the hourglass. These are the days of our lives. This is a soap opera at this point. Um, I, I would love to see like Fanny, Fanny get back on the on the stand and have to talk about the text messages and the ping data and all that stuff and explain, try and you know, snake her way through that, that in explaining that away, but we won't get that. So, uh, this, this should be the last day, right? Before he rules. Um, yeah. Unless he decides to reopen evidence and allow to hear from the investigator and any other witnesses. Mm. So we don't, we don't entirely know. I think it's, it was originally expected to be the last day until this last motions process on the cellular cell cell data. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you just got here, please hit that thumbs up button down there. That is a huge way that you can help, uh, you know, not just, uh, 
not just us here on this program, but Badlands as a whole. Uh, if you'd like to leave a rumble rant, this is a non, there's no ads on this show. So this is just Ash and I kicking it back and forth and Gordon will be joining us here. And uh, so that is, you know, how we eat ramen noodles and everything else. And uh, yeah, here we go. Come on. Let's go. Ramen noodles and Taco Bell. Listen, oh. if you want to get Brian off of Taco Bell, you're going to have to give us a rumble rant because he's too poor yeah. to afford anything else. That's not entirely For just true. a dollar a day, you, you can support you. Brian Lupo's um, rehabilitation process from Taco Bell. I know. I went, I went, I went almost three weeks without Taco Bell. That was, that was a long time for me. I was having withdrawals. I was like huddled up in the corner of my, my house, like just like salivating. And like, I couldn't, I had the shakes and I was cold, but if I put a blanket on, then it was hot anyways. All right. It looks like we are getting ready to go. The clerks are coming in and, uh, I'm so excited. Who's excited. Are you excited? I'm excited. Turn the volume on. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. Today's the last day. Taco Bell has mystery meat, says Kick Dreaming, and it's a mysteriously delicious. You're not gonna, you're not gonna win this battle because me and Ash concur on this. We we agree completely. I, I do love Taco Bell. <laughs> Brian, just go. I heard Chris giving you shit for it on daily this morning. I'm like, eh. All right, here we go. Judges in the house. All rise. Let's go. And I do love real Mexican food too. Oh, you know what? Let me record with 23 SC Let me share this a uh, different way. There uh, we go. With the state, if I could have counsel for today, identifying themselves for the record. I don't body for the state. Yeah. All right. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Steve Sado and Jennifer Little Ford, President Trump. Understood. Thank you, Mr. Sado. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Richard Rice and Chris Anulowitz from Mr. Chile, and Mr. Chile waves his presence. All right, on behalf of Mr. Giuliani. Alan Stotts, and on behalf of Mayor Giuliani, who waves his presence. Thank you. On behalf of Mr. Meadows. Your Honor, Jim Durham, on behalf of Mr. Meadows, he waves his appearance. On behalf of Mr. Clark. Harry McDougall, Your Honor, Mr. Clark waves his appearance. On behalf of Mr. Roman. Good morning, Judge Ashley Merchant and John Merchant on behalf of Mr. Roman, and he waves his presence. On behalf of Mr. Schaefer. Good morning, Your Honor. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Mike Gillen, Anthony Lake, and Holly Pearson on behalf of David Schaefer, and he waves his presence. On behalf of Mr. Floyd. Do we have anyone joining us on Zoom on behalf of Mr. Floyd? All right. Well, seeing as Council had previously attended the prior hearings and this one has been noticed. I'll find that they've waived their appearance for argument today. Uh, anyone on behalf of Ms. Latham? Captain Yonah, Bill Cromwell on behalf of Ms. Latham. She waves her presence. All right, thank you, Mr. Cromwell. All right, so I had been informed by uh, counsel collectively for the defendants that they were requesting a total of an hour and a half for argument to be divided amongst themselves if they've, as they've already agreed. And so to effectuate that, I have, I'll have the uh, time uh, queued up and we'll start the clock running and you all can see fit to divide that as you uh, would like. And obviously I've allowed uh, the same amount of time for the state as well. Uh, before we get into that, I believe there may have been 
a few things just to uh, clean up as part of the record. Uh, specifically, since we last convened, uh, counsel on behalf of Mr. Roman had submitted a Defense Exhibit 39. And uh, if there are any ob objections that wanted to be placed on the record, I'm going to have do that now. Uh, but at a minimum, I think the intention was that I would be admitting that uh, collectively uh, as an exhibit, if nothing else, just for appellate uh, purposes for the record. Mr. Abadi, anything the state wants to add as it relates to Exhibit 39? I have a copy for the court reporter. I have a copy out and I sent it. All right. If you've got that marked and stamped, we'll provide that to the court reporter. All right. And then, as I'd indicated as well on Tuesday, both parties since the uh, close of the evidence on the 16th had followed up. Uh, now, I think both sides have made requests to reopen the evidence. On behalf of the defense, there were some issues with uh, cell phone records, and the state has uh, found an additional uh, witness that they would like to present. And the instruction I provided on Tuesday was that for today, I think we've reached the point where I'd like to hear more of how some of the legal arguments apply to what has already been presented. And it may already be possible for me to make a decision uh, without those needing to be material uh, to that decision. So that's why we're here today. I wanted to make sure we held this time because it is a bit of a logistical challenge to get everyone in a room together. Uh, so, but recognizing that, um, again, in the interest of efficiency, if both parties to reserve part of their time to argue as if those proffered uh, exhibits have been admitted, feel free to make whatever arguments you, you would like. And if in fact it turns out that I do need those to be part of the record to make a decision, then we'd have to come back and we will do those in accordance with the rules of evidence. Mr. Gillen. <clears throat> we have a, you know, we have not filed anything, but we also have a proffer of a witness that we would like to call in the event the court does open the evidence up. I can make an oral proffer as to who that witness is and what that witness would be saying. And I could do it, and I think in a fairly brief manner, uh, if the court would permit me, so the court would understand where I'm coming from. And I believe also Mr. Cromwell uh, also has a uh, brief proffer uh, for a witness that he has uh, has has uh, talked with and does have an oral proffer. So. so are these, we've got, this is the first I've heard of it. So are these things that have been discussed or shared with the state at all? No, Your Honor, I literally, uh, my communication with this particular witness occurred uh, this morning at about 10:10, uh, 10, 10, uh, along with Mr. Uh, Chris and Nolan was on the call with me. Be more than happy to to enlighten the court as to uh, what the say, who the witness is, and in a in a brief brief summary of what uh, this particular witness would testify to. In the event the court allows for evidence to be reopened, and on the record, I would state that on behalf of my client, Mr. Schaefer. We do want the record to be reopened so that the court could hear what they, if they want to bring in someone from California, let them bring them in. And we believe that the court uh, might want to hear the proffer and the evidence that we are uh, prepared to at least proffer today. All right. So, Mr. Gillen, on that point to, to this and Mr. Cromwell's, you know, even additional evidence, in my mind, uh, in the interest of a fair notice to the other side, uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want that to be part of the argument today because the state has no idea what you're about to say. And I think the the, the purpose of a proffer in large part in this role and in this context is having them at least have the ability to make those initial counter arguments. Now, um, I don't think that would prevent you from after today's hearing. If you want to file it, make it part of the record. 
then I think that both parties have already elected that they are willing to use that mechanism. Uh, but just for today, um, kind of showing up now without having shown this uh, other side at all, even this morning, uh, I don't think that would be fair. I do not intend to use the proffer in the legal argument. Sure. I just wanted the court to be aware that we do have an oral proffer. We can file it and we can supplement the record and file it uh, for the court's consideration, but literally right. <clears throat> hot off the press sure. as we uh, printed it out and drove down uh, to the court here. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Mr. Cromwell, is there anything you want to add to that? No, Your Honor. Okay. Mr. Abadi, anything you want to add to that? I don't know what it is, so I don't know how to add to it. No. So sorry. All right. Just anything on, though, on a procedural perspective? I mean, from a procedural perspective, I would uh, submit to the court, as you said multiple times, evidence is closed. Um, this is uh, beyond the scope of, uh, I guess, uh, Your Honor's uh, ruling uh, on uh, I guess it was Tuesday. It was like it was three weeks ago, but Tuesday. So um, I guess we'd object at this point and go from there. Okay. All right. Anything else by way of housekeeping, Mr. Sado? Uh, apparently the state filed two supplemental exhibits, number two and number three, about 15 minutes ago. Um, so to the extent that they intend to work to use those in their proffer uh, with this requirement, we actually did just got it as well. Understood. So as it relates to that, Your Honor, um, I believe you were very clear on Tuesday as well that in the proffers we could argue rebuttal evidence as it relates to the uh, evidence that was submitted by defense counsel after the evidence was closed. And that's merely what it is, is rebuttal evidence as it relates to the cell phone records or analysis um, that was done by the non-expert, um, Bob and Mr. Seda. All right. Mr. Killen. Uh, when, uh, as it relates to the, to the proffered evidence, our proffered evidence would be in direct rebuttal <clears throat> to testimony given uh, uh, in the courtroom, particularly by Mr. Bradley. So we would have a direct rebuttal of that. That's what our proffer will be. I understand the court's ruling. Just want to uh, put that on the okay. record. So we know the context of it. Is that similar for Mr. Cromwell as well? It is. And just solely relates to Mr. Bradley's testimony? It does. Okay. All right. All right, noted. Anything else then? Your Honor, the, the proffered evidence is basically would corroborate what uh, has been admitted in evidence as Exhibit 39, but the chronological texts. Okay. All right. Uh, nothing else. I'll turn it over uh, to Ms. Merchant to begin on behalf of the defense. Sorry, Judge. Unfortunately, you're okay. stuck with me today. Understood. May, may it please the court, Your Honor, uh, John Merchant on behalf of Mr. Roman, uh, just by way of roadmap uh, to give you some idea about the allocation of time and what I'm going to be covering. Uh, uh, I've been charged with talking to Your Honor about the conflict issue and the appearance of a conflict uh, and what we believe the evidence to show on that issue. Uh, Mr. Sadow, um, Mr. Gillum will be talking more about the forensic misconduct piece of it. Uh, Ms. Willis's church speech, uh, statements made to the media, uh, fraud on the court, 
frankly, and um, the book that she gave several interviews for. Um, so I won't be discussing any of those issues. So if you if you like to ask me, certainly I can try to address them. But that's that's going to be the focus of their uh, presentation. And then uh, towards the end, other folks uh, may have uh, issue specific type arguments, uh, either in follow up to mine or the forensicness. Those are the two lanes um, that we're going to be covering, but I'm going to do the conflict piece of it for you. And on that issue, uh, Your Honor, um, this is a matter of first impression uh, in Georgia. Uh, I can't find a single case uh, that's been published um, by the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court that is based on these facts. Um, there are, of course, a number of different uh, appellate court cases that deal with conflict-related issues and, more importantly, appearance of conflict-related issues. And uh, some of those are based in state law. Some of them are based on the ethical rules that govern lawyers. Um, some of them are based upon the Sixth Amendment right uh, to due process that's implicit in all of what we're doing here today. I want to remind the court that we're here today on this motion to disqualify uh, D.A. Willis and her office because uh, of her judgment, um, frankly. Uh, she is supposed to be disinterested under the Sixth Amendment, and she's anything but that. Uh, the fact that these proceedings have taken this long uh, and through through the convoluted way we've we've made it here today explain that. Um, so as I present my arguments, I want the court to understand that this court uh, represents the guardrails for the Sixth Amendment in this context. And Ms. Willis has already been disqualified once. So I, I would encourage the court to uh, remember what Judge McBurney did uh, in his order disqualifying same argument was made in that case as to whether or not there needs to be an actual uh, conflict of interest or whether or not the appearance of a conflict of interest uh, might uh, be sufficient uh, under the facts. I want to make clear to the court that I, I the law in Georgia suggests and is very clear that we can demonstrate an appearance of a conflict of interest and that is sufficient. Uh, there are there is I'm going to be candid with the court. There is a Supreme Court decision from 1996. Lambie State, and then there are two Court of Appeal decisions after that that deal, uh, it, and frankly, in some dicta that suggests that an actual conflict um, is required. But the, the Supreme Court of Georgia, since those decisions uh, came down, has made quite clear that the appearance of a conflict standard still applies. And the reason that's important is I think under the Sixth Amendment, which is where we're, we're at, um, in order to preserve the defendant's um, rights under that uh, under that provision and under corollary provisions of Georgia law, you've got you've got to consider the appearance of a conflict. And the reason why the appearance of a conflict is so prescient here um, is because if if this court allows um, this kind of behavior uh, to go on um, in and allows DAs across the state um, by its order to um, engage in these kinds of activities, the entire uh, public confidence in the system will be shot. Um, and the integrity of the system will be undermined. Uh, and so with those sort of public policy and constitutional principles, um, I wanted to return uh, to the law in Georgia on disqualification. And Your Honor, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the law and then I'm gonna talk about the facts and how they apply to the law at the end. If you want to talk about the facts earlier, jump right in and I'll, I'll be happy to do that. I'm sure Your Honor is very well prepared and probably knows uh, all the law that I'm gonna cite to you, but uh, to give the, the skeleton outline, um, the, the original uh, seminal case that deals with conflict of interest uh, from the Georgia Supreme Court is Williams v. State, that's 258 Georgia 305. And they're basically two methods by which you can disqualify um, a district attorney. One of them is a conflict of interest, and I'll suggest the, to the court, that doesn't mean an actual conflict, that could mean an appearance of conflict as well, and then forensic misconduct. 
Um, importantly, in the Williams case, though, in footnote four, and I think this is important for the court's analysis about the facts and where they, which box it fits into, the court said there is no clear demarcation line between conflict of interest and forensic misconduct, and given a given ground for disqualification of the prosecutor might be classifiable as either. And I think that's important because we have facts that fit in both boxes. So if the state stands up actual conflict here, Judge, that doesn't mean necessarily that it doesn't apply to the forensic misconduct. Um, typically, forensic misconduct relates to statements of the prosecutor uh, designed to uh, impugn the character of the defendant before trial uh, and to affect the jury pool, uh, which we have here, which I'm not going to discuss. But the, the facts that we have here very much relate um, to that issue, and, they, and there's crossover. Um, Importantly, um, and I think this is important for the court's consideration of what, what effect the court's ruling may have, um, it is if, if you deny this motion, there's a good chance if it's reversed that, we're, that we would be granted a new trial. So that means we're going to have to do this all over again. Um, in uh, amusement sales uh, versus state, 316 Georgia Appellate 727, um, that's a case that cites Whitworth, which is physical precedent only. Um, the court said, if the assigned prosecutor has acquired a personal interest or stake in the conviction, the trial court abuses its discretion in denying a motion to disqualify him, and the defendant is entitled to a new trial, new trial, even without a showing of prejudice. So that means if 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 we show the court today, and I think we have uh, through the proceedings uh, today and before, that Ms. Willis has developed a very personal interest in this case, and Your Honor denies this motion, uh, we're coming back over again if the appellate court say say we you were wrong so what um, what is that personal interest so the so the personal interest can be there's there's no definition of that under georgia law and it, it could be a personal financial interest it could be a personal interest related to uh, bias against a particular defendant which f sort of falls into the forensic misconduct box uh, but we have here a very personal financial interest that's been laid out uh, in terms of uh, money received by miss willis as a result of the the scheme that she set up um, and um, To, to get to the issue of the of the personal interest in the context of an appearance, I think that's important. I do want to uh, suggest to the court that there are a number of cases um, that uh, post-date uh, this actual conflict of interest language um, that's suggested in some of the cases from the 90s uh, that, that you have to pay attention to what this looks like to the public. Um, and I, I agree with uh, all of the law, and I'm sure the state's going to stand up here and say it can't be a speculative uh, or a conjectural um, type of uh, personal interest. Um, we don't have that here. We have something very concrete. And as, as Judge McBurney put it, um, actual and palpable, not speculative, exactly what we have here. We've demonstrated through the testimony of the witnesses, uh, some of whom impeached themselves, uh, that we have a very personal interest. Um, in uh, the, 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 the seminal um, United States court case that deals with um, prosecutorial impropriety um, is Young v. U.S. Um, that's a 41 U.S. 787 case. In that case, it's the opportunity for conflicts to arise that created at least the appearance of impropriety. And that's the case that requires that the prosecutor be disinterested. Since a scheme injecting a personal interest, financial or otherwise, into the enforcement process may bring irrelevant and impermissible factors into the prosecutorial decision. 
Now, there are a number of Georgia cases that sort of repeat that theme. Uh, Reeves v. State, 231, Georgia Appellate 22, that's a 1998 case, stated a potential conflict of interest existed in the appearance of impropriety existed. Um, Davenport v. State, 157, Georgia Appellate 704, that's a 1981 case. That was decided seven years before Williams. When there is at least the appearance of impropriety, a defendant is denied fundamental fairness in the state's prosecution of the charges against him or her. There are also rules that govern computers. Um, lawyers in, in general are bound to preserve and avoid even the appearance of impropriety. That's Brown v. State, 256, Georgia Appellate, uh, 603, 202, uh, 2002. Head v. State. Um, a prosecutor's close personal relationship with the victim in a case may create at least the appearance of a prosecution unfairly based on private interest rather than one properly based on vindication of public interest. Uh, uh, ABA criminal justice standards for the prosecution function standard 3.3-1.2C. Uh, a prosecutor should avoid appearance of impropriety in performing the prosecution function. 3-1.7F, the prosecutor should not permit the prosecutor professional judgment or obligations to be affected by the prosecutor's personal, political, financial, professional, business, property, or other interests or relationships. So the rules that govern her in her own profession say that this is wrong because she developed a financial interest in this case. And at the very least, uh, created the appearance of unfairness towards these defendants by setting up a relationship, uh, a, a, a prosecutorial relationship with her boyfriend um, that she'd been dating for two years, according to the testimony. So before I move, um, Your Honor, to the to the specific, I, I, you asked, you know, what's personal interest? And I think, frankly, um, as I was trying to figure this out, I think you know it when you see it. It's just like um, in the concurrence in uh, Jacobellis versus State of Ohio Supreme Court case from 1964, Justice Stewart in, in his concurrent opinion said, I know it when I see it, talking about obscenity. I think you know it when you see it. I think I think there's uh, enough facts in front of you um, that you you know it when you see it. And um, I, I, so I think that that, that governing principle um, helps enlighten uh, some of the facts here. Um, and also I think it's not just financial and McLaughlin v. State, I think the court's very familiar with that case, 295 Georgia 609, uh, 2014, the Supreme Court essentially said that because the, the acting DA had become a witness in the case and developed a personal uh, interest in the case due to the, his daughter's relationship uh, with the victim, um, that he was disqualified. Uh, and, and, not, and because he was disqualified, his entire office was disqualified. Um, so turning to the facts of the case, Your Honor, um, I think I've got, my, my role is 20 minutes, so I've got about eight minutes left. Um, so why, why the relationship, why did we spend so much time on a relationship um, between these two people? We frankly didn't care less if they had a personal relationship outside of work. That, that is not what the issue is here. The issue is that they began this relationship in 2019. They were dating for two years, and then she awarded him a contract where public money, either from Fulton County or the state of Georgia, ended up in his pockets. That decision alone was improper. But what's even, what's even more improper is that then she, she and he used that money to go on personal vacations and trips. Um, if Your Honor will re remember, Exhibits 9, 11, and 12 dealt with the expenditures um, by Wade um, on trips. Um, if you if you do the math on that, 
if you look at what, what he spent and then you look at the testimony about what was paid back um, by Willis because the, the cash reimbursement theory, well, I'll talk about in a second, but it, he, if you, if you do the math on what he actually paid for and, and what they testified she paid back in cash, you still have uh, over $9,200. $9,200 and $9,247 to be exact is, is the amount of money they cannot account for in their testimony. And as your honor will remember, um, there was no of cash in Mr. Wade's affidavit when uh, the best and first opportunity to, to raise that issue would have come up is when the state filed their response in his affidavit. That is nowhere to be found in there. The first time we heard about cash um, was here in this courtroom. Uh, and so I think um, she had a, she, so she's received a personal financial benefit of over $9,200 in this case that she can't account for and the state can't account for. And the reason we can't account for it is because they, they came up with a cash theory. The cash theory only, well, only raised. Before we get into that, let me ask you this. Um, let's say they couldn't have, let's say the theory wasn't even there that they had paid it back or that there'd been any exchange is should there first be a consideration of a materiality requirement no have you seen not. that in this jurisdiction or any, well not in, it's not in this jurisdiction have you seen that in any other jurisdiction i haven't seen that judge and if it was six dollars that would still be improper would it be improper where it's a per se disqualification if someone you know buys their boss a stick of gum is that per se disqualifying because there's no materiality requirement it, it well no i i I don't, don't disagree that it may not meet a materiality requirement, but it's a personal benefit. I won't say that giving a pack of gum is, is just justification for disqualifying a disreturn. I think that's part of the issue, Judge. I think it's a fact-based brief by you. So there's a continuum involved here. Yeah, I, I, but I think, I think the continuum involves you looking at whether or not um, on the grand scheme, in the grand scheme of things, it violates the Constitution and whether or not what, what, there's an appearance uh, of a conflict and, and the appearance suggests that she actually received a benefit. And we know that she did, they admitted it. We don't have to speculate about that. They said that they, she said she got a benefit and she said she paid back certain amounts. It, it, so it, in that regard, your honor, I don't know, would hundred dollars be enough? Would $200 be enough? I think you have to look at it um, globally and, and consider all of the witnesses, consider all of the facts, consider, consider the credibility of the witnesses, frankly. Right. I mean, your honor sat here and watched everybody. So I haven't spent a lot of time going into the specific testimony because your honor is well aware of it, but you get to evaluate the credibility of the witnesses as a fact finder. And, um, you know, just, just, just from a legal perspective, though, you're saying we can't just say dollar amount, look no further. There has to be a totality of the circumstances analysis. I think I think it's fact specific, Judge. I, I don't really want you to pin me down on that because I, there's no law on it. I can't give you a straight answer because I haven't seen anything like that. I don't. And I think if we build a materiality requirement um, into the into the case law, then you're down. You're down a slippery slope then because then then it's going to be very deciding, well, is $50 enough? Is $100 enough? So I think um, it's not necessarily the amount of the money. It's the fact that she received it. And it's it's not insignificant. Um, and I don't think your order has to say because she received $9,200, she's disqualified. I think if we go back to the 20,000 foot level, where's the what's the appearance here? Is this fairness to the defendants? Um, is does it, does it appear that she is interested in this prosecution or does it appear that she's disinterested? She took the stand. You can tell she's not a disinterested person uh, when it comes to this proceeding. But we also argue she's not a disinterested person uh, when it comes to the prosecution as a whole. Um, it, I'm going to leave for um, 
I'll resist the temptation uh, to defend my wife, um, and who I believe to be an excellent lawyer and a member of the bar for 20 years um, in good standing. But I will say this, Judge, you don't just evaluate the credibility of the witnesses. You evaluate the credibility of the lawyers. Um, and Mr. Abadi stood up here in open court in front of national news and in the national public and called her a liar. Um, I need to address that for one minute. Um, the the text, text messages that are now part of the record which now are substantive evidence for you to consider, um, uh, prove everything that she, everything that she tried to elicit um, from Mr. Bradley was absolutely 100% true. And not only was it true, she verified through the witness himself that the motion was accurate before it was filed. So for the state to get up here and impugn her credibility, um, it's not only improper, it violates Berger versus United States, which is a case that says the state can't just get up here and make any argument it wants. And I encourage the court to call him out on it when he did, when he steps up here. You, we have to have candor towards the tribunal. You cannot lie to the court, cannot lie to the public, cannot lie to the jury. And I think that's what he did. So there's other corroboration uh, of our view that uh, she, she was in this relationship. I, I think Frankly, based on Mr. Bradley's testimony, your honor can separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to credibility, but he, Mr. Bradley had two chances um, to correct information that he suddenly developed amnesia about, uh, but, and he just didn't do it. Um, How it, does the timing of the relationship impact a financial interest? Because it's part of the scheme she created intentionally um, in order to give benefits to her boyfriend. So they had, there's a reason why they fought so hard on this judge. I mean, there's a reason, there's a reason that every single subpoena was objected to every we asked Mr. Bradley was objected to, uh, jumping up and down all of the, all of the obfuscation. There's a reason for that. They know that if your honor finds that that relationship started in 2019, that the appointment of weight itself was improper. And if that was improper, then he had no business as an average citizen, uh, along with the fact that he didn't have approval from, they didn't have approval from Fulton County to appoint him in the first place, that undermines the indictment, it creates a structural impairment in the indictment. Um, Cause he, he had no more business being in the, in the grand jury room than, than I did. Um, so that's what they're worried about. And the reason why it's important for the financial peace judge is it's how the money ended up going back to her. She put her boyfriend in the spot, paid him and then reaped the benefits from it. Um, that she created the system and then didn't tell anybody about it. Um, she didn't even tell her dad about it. So I think if in the grand scheme of things, if you're looking at the totality of the facts, um, it, and I've got to sit down here in about two minutes to make room for my co-counsel. Uh, if you look at it, everything put together, judges, they tried, they did this, they knew it was wrong, they hit it, and they didn't, they, even when they were called out on it, they tried to create an excuse for it by saying it happened after the fact. Um, we know now from the testimony, Ms. Yerdy confirmed uh, that Mr. Bradley, uh, his text messages were accurate court testimony, but, um, but that, that, that fact was accurate. The motion is accurate. And so um, uh, also, I, I do want to point out, um, there's no paper trail here uh, for the cash. Um, I know that this was a, I know she, she and her father both testified um, both testified that they kept cash on hand, um, which, I mean, keeping cash on hand in, its, in and of itself is not a problem. When you're a public official and you're required to keep track of gifts that you receive, uh, then you need to keep track of it. But there's no paper trail. There's no deposit history. There's no withdrawal history. There's no receipts, none of that. 
So even, even assuming their testimony could be credible, and, and we don't think that it is, you still don't have enough information to, to keep to track all that money that she received. And this is just but, what but we But does know the about. lack of evidence fall on the state? Isn't that, isn't this, is, does the lack of evidence fall on the state? Isn't, isn't that where burdens come in? Yeah, it, 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 yes, I think they had an obligation to tell your honor, hey, this is where the money went. And they certainly had the ability to do that if they could do it. Since they didn't do it, we have to assume they can't. And if they can't, uh, I just want to remind the court of a very important piece of testimony from Ms. Willis um, that I think goes to credibility of all of the uh, officers of the court who testified. She met with Wade and they developed in 10 minutes after talking about the financial piece, I believe this cash theory um, that could not be rebutted. We have no ability to do that. Um, they did um, and they chose not to do it. Um, so with that, Your Honor, unless Your Honor has more questions for me, I'm going to sit down and turn uh, the podium over uh, to my distinguished colleague, uh, Mr. Sadow. Thank you, Mr. Merchant. Appreciate the court's time. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Your Honor. I'm going to speak to what I would call a subset of forensic misconduct. And I'm going to assume that all the law that's been provided to you in pleadings, as well as emails, you know, you don't need me to tell you what the law is. So I want to just set up how the disqualification and then dismissal of the indictment should take place under the subset of forensic misconduct. Roman's counsel, this merchant, filed on January 8 her pleading, her motion to dismiss and to disqualify. We were in court that Friday of that week in which I made it known that we, that is President Trump, may adopt that motion. I waited to see, wanted to see what was going to happen before I did so. That Sunday, which would be January the 14th, 2024, uh, D.A. Willis took it upon herself to go to a historic black church in Atlanta, having not responded at all to the motion of Ms. Merchant's client, Roman. And she made what we now call the church speech. And Your Honor has reference to that. Uh, you didn't necessarily want evidence on that, but you know what the church speech was church speech was. It was videoed. It was clear that Miss uh, Willis had notes. She was reading from notes that she had prepared. It was a calculated determination by Miss Willis to prejudice the defendants and their counsel. How so? By making an issue out of the fact that the person that was challenged in the Roman motion was black. Without telling the public or the church members, or anyone for that matter, that the reason that Mr. Uh, Wade was being challenged was not because he was black, had nothing to do with race. It had to do with the relationship that had been alleged and later admitted to by Ms. Merchant. Ms. Willis took full opportunity to 
the defendants. And then comes along later in a pleading and says it wasn't designed or intended to be at the defendants at all or the defense counsel, which with all due respect is just nonsense. The purpose of that was to get public sympathy, public empathy for what Ms. Merchant had already alleged in her motion. Now, that was a violation of the professional rules of conduct. It was a violation of 3.8 G. There's no question about it. It wasn't in response to anything that was said. It was a public statement, extrajudicial, for the purpose of making a comment upon the defendants. It would be in response to a motion that was filed. But it wasn't filed in a response in a pleading, it was filed in response to a motion. And the motion were allegations made. As I, if Ms. Willis wanted to respond at that point, she could have said the facts of the matter. Instead, she misstated what the, re, the situation was, took advantage of the opportunity, an ethical violation. And the ethical violation makes it clear that you must refrain from making extrajudicial comments that have a substantial likelihood of heightening public condemnation of the accused. Can you think of anything more that would heighten public condemnation of the defendants than alleging that defense counsel and the defendants were making their motion based on race and religion? That's as bad as it gets in Fulton County with all due respect. That's exactly, that's exactly what Ms. Willis wanted done. And remember, the state still had not responded. So then what we get from the state is we get an affidavit filed as part of their response. And that affidavit says specifically, and the affidavit is Mr. Wade, says specifically, in paragraphs 26 and 27, that the relationship did not begin until 2022. It acknowledges the relationship and says it didn't begin until 2022. And the pleading that's filed, the state's pleading and response indicates not exactly that, but it says there was no relationship as of November 1 of 2021. And that's on page seven. So that timing is the issue because this merchant made it clear that we alleged and had evidence that's, that indicated the timing was before Mr. Wade was hired, not after. So the state now has filed an affidavit and a pleading that claims post hiring into 2022. And then Mr. Wade, Ms. Willis testify to the same thing under oath. Now, Ms. Yerti says it began in 2019. Why would she know? Well, she would know because she was a former friend. I know the state's going to get up here and say, you can't believe, essentially what they're going to say is you can't believe any defense witness because they're defense witnesses. And only people that would tell the truth would be Wade and Willis. I suggest to you that that's not accurate. I suggest that the testimony that Mr. Wade gave and Ms. Willis gave, and I'm specifically dealing now with the timing issue without getting into anything else, that that brought forth a true concern about their truthfulness and being what is required of a lawyer in this state, which is candor for the tribunal. And that's 3.3 of the professional rules, specifically 
um, small a one, make a false statement of material fact or law to a tribunal. So that's, as I posited to the court, that's the second ethical violation. And then you also have 8.4 of, of the professional rules that says it's a violation of the Georgia rules of professional conduct for a lawyer to, and that's A4, engage in a professional conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. Now, do you have to find that Wade and Willis lied? No. What you need to be able to find is that there is a concern, a legitimate concern based on the evidence in this case about their truthfulness a legitimate concern about the truthfulness, which equates to an appearance of impropriety. Because once you have the appearance of impropriety under forensic misconduct, the law in Georgia is clear, that's enough to disqualify. So why should you find there's a concern with their truthfulness? ERT is the first one, you have that testimony, but then we go to, to what is the most obvious indication that Willis and Wade were not truthful on the point of timing, and that's Bradley. Defense Exhibit 26 came into evidence. Defense Exhibit 26 comes in and says, and you know I went into this the last hearing. It says, that on January the 5th, 2024 at approximately 9.49 a.m. There's text messages that are exchanged between Ms. Merchant and Mr. Bradley. And the text messages go like just date, and that's from Ms. Merchant. Ms. Merchant says, do you think it started before she hired him? Bradley, who we now know from Defense Exhibit 39, has been texting with Ms. Merchant for a number of months. This is not the first time. This is months within the, the communication between the two. Mr. Bradley says, absolutely. Now, absolutely is not a speculative word. That's not speculation. That's a definitive statement. And Bradley then unprompted <coughs> as this. And unprompted is important. It started when she left the DA's office and was a judge in South Fulton. It goes on, Ms. Merchant says, or he, she liked it started when she left the DA's office with the appropriate, um, or whatever one would call it to say it was liked. And then Ms. Bradley, Mr. Bradley said they met at the municipal court CLE conference, again, unprompted. He's now definitively telling Ms. Merchant when this relationship started. Ms. Merchant says, that's what I figured when he was married. And then Ms. Merchant says, and we're now talking about a couple hours later, she texts and says, upon information and belief, Willis and Wade met while both were serving as magistrate judges and began a romantic relationship at that time. And Mr. Bradley responds, no, municipal court, thank you. Doesn't say it didn't start then. He doesn't suggest that she's wrong other than magistrate court municipal. Now we have that and it's in evidence. And what does Bradley do? He knows 
that he's put himself in a position that if he testifies truthfully on the witness stand, your honor is in a position to be able to find, if, it, if you choose to, that both Willis and Wade lied. So what does Bradley do? Look, you were an assistant U.S. attorney. It works when you have witnesses in this situation. Mr. Bradley did everything he could possibly do to evade answering questions. No recollection, couldn't remember, it was speculation. Anything he could possibly say that would cause your honor not to believe that Bradley knew when this relationship started. I suggest they were clear-cut lies and the truth is in Defense Exhibit 26. And so if we take that view, that he thoroughly impeached himself, that he did not give truthful conduct, uh, you know, what's left standing? Generally, you would see someone who's impeached, perhaps we have some kind of core that you could point back to and say, that's the time he was telling the truth. In these text messages, is it ever definitively shown how he knew this and that he actually did know it, other than in just a assertion outright, absolutely. Usually if a state has a witness that goes sideways, they've got them locked in. They've sat down with a detective, got a full statement. We don't have that here. But what you have is a text message, which is a prior statement of Bradley that he did on his own, that was not given to him by some. The only thing that the court is just noted is, how do we know he wasn't speculating? Because you don't have to, except the fact that he wasn't speculating. The cases that I provided, I think by email yesterday, the first um, dealing with that, you can disbelieve that testimony and draw a negative inference. That's the Ferguson case. On Lee, the other case, you can simply take the prior inconsistent statement as substantive evidence. It has the same value. And that's what I'm asking you to do, to take what was the unprompted statement in Defense Exhibit 26 of Bradley, and take that on its face, face value, that that is an indication that Bradley in fact knew and had said he did. If you accept that, you have to have concerns about the truthfulness of Willis and Wade on the timing issue. And, and I don't know if this is something maybe one of your co-counsel were going to address as well. We heard about kind of the law that, that applies how we're, we're outside kind of the orbit of of the core of cases we're used to dealing with here where it deals with side switching or uh, where someone is in the uh, relationship, the client relationship. The proposition you're putting forward now is that if a representative of the state, either the district attorney themselves, um, says something that's untruthful on the record, that is something that immediately has to be proactively policed by the trial court. Is basically what I'm getting at is where in the law do we find the remedy to an untruthful statement? Generally, we send you down the street to the bar, right? And that's why I gave you the cases of Registe and Edwards yesterday. While those aren't prosecutorial cases or dealing with prosecutors, they deal with counsel. And in both those cases, the trial judge found ethical violations on the part of defense counsel or potential ethical violations went through the ethical violations and said, based on that, you're disqualified. You cannot be the attorney of record in this case. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. If defense counsel can be kicked off of a case because of ethical violations, I suggest the same thing can happen 
for prosecutors when the ethical violations deal with truthfulness, candor to the court, extrajudicial statements. Uh, those are the things that this court can rely upon and say, based on those, again, I find an appearance of impropriety. Where, where would be the limiting principle? Uh, District Attorney signs every indictment assigned to this courtroom. Does no, that mean she's off every case? No, it would be when the... If I found that she's untruthful, is that what you're kind of suggesting that you don't have to find again i'm not saying you have to find she was untruthful or that wade was untruthful you don't have to make a finding of fact that they lied all you have to do is make a finding of fact that you have genuine legitimate concerns about their credibility about their truthfulness and once you find that then you can apply registe and and uh, edwards well but it's the same principle though if i have genuine concerns about her Truthfulness on a particular occasion, how do those not spill over into every criminal case a district attorney brings? Well, it's because she testified under oath, and so did Mr. Wade. They didn't have to testify falsely. They could have testified truthfully. They could have indicated that the relationship, the timing was in fact before Mr. Wade was hired. They chose not to. And in that sense, that dishonesty, that constitutes a violation of their ethical responsibilities. This is not signing an indictment. This is not filing a pleading in which both sides have their own positions. This is a requirement that every witness has to tell the truth under oath. And if they don't tell the truth, or there's a significant concern about their credibility, then they're violating their ethical rules. And as anyone will tell you, as your honor already knew from when you were a prosecutor, prosecutors are held to a higher standard. They're the ones that are supposed to be seeking justice. They don't have a particular, they're supposed to be disinterested. When you have the lead prosecutor and the DA giving what I suggest to you is uh, untruthful testimony based on what Yerti has said, based on what Bradley said in his text, based on the whole way it was presented to you. Bradley didn't want to testify. He first came up with his attorney-client privilege thing on that. And your honor was, fortunately, went into that. And then when Bradley knew he had to testify about it, you saw what happened. You can draw the inference, as I've suggested on Bradley, that what he said in the text message, Defense Exhibit 26, is true. The relationship, in fact, started prior to November 1st of 2021. That ERT says that, and now, without getting into any detail, the cell phone records. The cell phone records show that during that period of time from, let's say, April 1, 2021 to November 1st, I'm sorry, November 30th of 2021, that there was a number, a considerable number, 35 or more um, occasions where it appeared that, based on the records, that Mr. Wade was down in the area where Ms. Willis was staying in Yerti's apartment. But more important is there are two occasions, and the state has not challenged those. There are two occasions where the records reflect that it appears Mr. Wade spent the night at that apartment. <coughs> the state may say, we don't accept that, but they didn't challenge it. And even when they brought forth what they brought forth today, supplemental two and three, they didn't challenge it again. So what does that suggest? That's corroborating evidence of what Yerte had said, of what Bradley said in his text message. It's also 
uh, impeachment evidence as to what Wade and Willis said about how many times. Is that a significant in terms of just the the times? Didn't Mr. Wade testify that he was there at least 10 times during that time frame? You've now found 35. Well, minimum of 35. Okay. But never overnight. He said he never spent overnight. Put that to the side, though, just in terms of the fact that he'd been over there, that he'd visited the place uh, and... I would presume he wasn't obviously keeping a, a, a very good accounting of it, but he, that wasn't something that was entirely denied. I, I, if you're asking me, do we win on the point that he said more than 10 or around 10 and we say 35, do we win on that point? Sure. No. Okay. It's not determined. The overnight rate might raise some more concerns. I understand. Yeah, it does. And that's the reason why we highlighted it in the affidavit of Mr. Middlestad, because that is suggestive that they were not being honest to the court. So then, let's see, how much time have I used? Too much. Have I? <laughs> I'm letting them use the hook. So, uh, suggestive. Again, raising issues. I'm wondering about burden. Uh, is it we're dealing with a preponderance standard? We are dealing with a preponderance standard, and it's our burden. Yeah. No question about that. So, does but, suggestive get us there? No, but it is corroborating evidence of evidence that we did put up. And that's what the purpose of the cell phone records. They corroborate what Yerti says. They corroborate what Bradley said in Defense Exhibit 26. And they impeach, to that extent, Wade and Willis's testimony. So if you find by a preponderance of the evidence, if you find by a preponderance of the evidence that my, what I call subset of forensic misconduct, ethical violations, has been shown, and that there is a significant and legitimate concern about the truthfulness of Wade and Willis, they're disqualified. Now, obviously, the factual findings are yours, but the law allows you to do that. You don't have to do it through an actual conflict. That's the other side of the equation. And that's what I've argued, and I think that's what Mr. Gibbons going to argue. Before I let you go, though, uh, this is an interesting classification. You're saying forensic conduct isn't just... Pub, com, commenting publicly about the case, indicating guilt. You're saying forensic conduct is just anything a district attorney says no. falls under that box? No, I'm, I'm saying that, Improper, that forensic misconduct as a subset of that would include violations, ethical violations, which impact the ability of the defendants to get a fair trial, as well as impact the court's ability to have faith that the prosecutors, these two prosecutors, are acting in good faith in their own conduct. Same idea dealing with, as I said, defense counsel in the two cases I mentioned, ethical violations can give rise to disqualification. And I said, here. All right, thank you, Mr. Sena. Thank you. Where's the shot clock when you need it? Right there. Um, <laughs> uh, Your Honor, I, I want to address very directly here what we have is a, a systematic, continuous pattern, a calculated plan, evidencing a design to prejudice the defendants in this case, in the minds of the jurors. This, this is what we have seen. This isn't an, uh, the, the problem that the, the uh, district attorney has. It's not that the district attorney had some sort of uh, brief uh, off-the-cuff statement in an interaction with a reporter like in Williams. That's not what we have here. We have someone who sat down, wrote out her speech, wrote out her plan. 
who wrote, has sat down for uh, whether it's six, two, three, or six times with the editors of Find Me the Votes and told and got her message out about this case before it was supposed to be tried in, in this courtroom. And so that is the problem that we have. We have a pattern of forensic misconduct on behalf of Ms. Willis. So now, we have a pattern of public statements being made. I, I take it you or your team has, has dived in and read, read the book. I know she was asked about specific portions in it. The only case that I can find actually talking about when someone crosses the line on public comments is that Williams case. And it talks about there has to be an implication of, uh, saying the defendant, a particular defendant is guilty and it even denied it. Right. So have you found any case in Georgia where they actually said that a prosecutor had gone too far in their public comments? Does one exist? Well, uh, number one, thank goodness it doesn't happen often. Sadly, it's already happened here. Now in Williams, the, uh, the prosecutor had one response to an inquiry the court found that was improper, but did not have this pattern. Now it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean uh, a comment about, uh, the, 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 the quote, guilt or innocence, although that was the pattern in, in Williams. It's the improper comments by a prosecutor. For example, in Williams, they cite the nature and consequences of forensic misconduct in prosecution of criminal case, a 1955 uh, law, uh, Columbia Law School uh, uh, article, and how prophetic that was. When, they, when, they, when Williams cites that case in that law school they talk about an, an, an awful lot more than simply the comments about, about uh, specific guilt or references to guilt. What you have here, Your Honor, is a comment, and we can't look at it in the, in the – it doesn't apply so only if a prosecutor said, I think the defendant is guilty in my mind. No, it's more pernicious than that. What we have here is someone who sat down – and, and drew up a plan for two reasons, drew up a plan for two reasons. And what she did uh, reminds me of what the court in STV Texas talks about, uh, and that is that pretrial can create major problems for a defendant, indeed more harmful than publicity during a trial, for it may set the community opinion as to guilt or innocence. That's what we have here. That's exactly what we have. And the court in Estes talks about the power of the television camera. So what uh, what do we have and what did the what did, did this prosecutor do? What she chose to do is sort of what was criticized by the Supreme Court in Shepard v. Maxwell. Legal trials are like are not like elections to be won through the use of meeting halls the, or the or the newspaper. That's exactly what we have here. What we have is a deflection. What this is all about is it's, it's, it's more insidious than just making the comments that she's made. It's a deflection. What she chose to do was to say, the, okay, I have done my best to hide the relationship with Nathan Wade. And Nathan Wade has done his very best uh, in, by filing false documents in his divorce case to hide his relationship with Miss Willis. Now, and so what, what did they do? Well, when Miss Merchant filed the motion to disqualify, now the game plan has to change. The game plan I call the deflection uh, begins to take place. 
The deflection is when the when the when the district attorney sat down and wrote out. Look at the look. At, I'm sure the court has. When you look at that video, it's in evidence of her speech at church. She has written out everything and she's reading from it. She chooses to deflect. The court asked earlier, wasn't she really responding to the motion uh, that had been filed against her? Would that she had? Because if she had, she would have looked the members of that case and say, I have been, there's been an allegation that I had a romantic relationship with Mr. Wade. And ladies and gentlemen of this congregation, it's true. She didn't do that. She chose to deflect and to do two things that are reprehensible for any lawyer, but particularly for a prosecutor. She chose to pull out the race card and the God card. That's what she did. And she wrote it out. She went on to, to deflect away from the allegations in the Wade motion. And she said, she's saying, why in, in, her, in her talk, public uh, discussion with God, why uh, are they only attacking one in reference to Mr. Uh, to Mr. Uh, Wade? Uh, and then she goes on to say, God, isn't it them playing the race card when they only question one? Now, if she had been truthful with that congregation, truthful with the, with the, with the community, she would have said, I had a relationship with him. Good, bad, forgive me, whatever. That's what she should have said. But she chose to deflect and say the, the them, the reference to them and the others and they. It's obviously a reference to the uh, by, um, by Miss Merchant. They uh, choose to go after uh, the, the black man. Uh, and she then goes on again, deflecting away and deflecting to the th what I call the third rail in American society, choosing somebody on the other side of being a racist. So-and-so is a racist. They're racist. She was the one playing the race card in a way to try to deflect from her own conduct. Uh, she goes on to say in her in discussions with the Lord, God, is that... Uh, is it that some uh, that some will never see a black man as qualified, no matter his achievements? Again, the deflection. What is what is she saying? The listener is not necessarily in that audience in that church. The listener is in uh, Fulton County. The potential jurors who will come into a courtroom and say whether or not they can fairly judge the evidence or judge the uh, the, the defense in this case. She chose to inject race into the minds of the listeners and virtually everybody in this community and literally everybody in this country has reviewed and, and analyzed her speech that she made in a premeditated way. And in, in not only the race card, but also in, 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 in bringing in the, the religious matter, this is exactly what Hammonds v. State and our Supreme Court talks about uh, condemning as an inflammatory appeal the juror's private religious beliefs. Why would she do that? To deflect. But now, not only is she deflecting, but she is then going forward and in a way telling the community, telling the congregation that God is on her side, not on the side of these people. God, she said, uh, and when she's talking uh, and she's saying, God, saying, pray for their souls. I, meaning God, qualified you. I qualified your imperfect, flawed self. I see you in every hour 
do my work. As though she's telling the folks in her very, very, very uh, implicit way, injecting into the minds of the jurors, God wants me to win this case. God wants me to prosecute this case. And why is he going, and why are these others going after uh, the black man? Well, the answer is very simple. As we said in our brief, we didn't mention uh, Mrs. Cross, Cross, the white female, or Mr. Floyd, the white male, because there was absolutely no evidence and is no evidence of a personal romantic relationship with them in which he obtained uh, these benefits. That's the reason why we, uh, uh, we did not uh, uh, do that. So the, she goes forward with, her, uh, with, the, with the deflections. That's exactly what she does uh, when she goes forward and she talks about a planned interviews time and time again with authors of a book, Find Me the Votes, where she's talking about a case that's going to be tried in this courtroom. It's reprehensible. So in that specific, excuse me, instance, uh, setting aside the fact that she was willing to go on the record before a case had even reached the jury, uh, what specific statements from that book do you contend cross the line? Well, for example, she's saying, uh, you know, she goes on to talk about all the calls that she's get, she gets from people calling her racial terms. Uh, and, you know, all the calls are racist. What she's trying to do, and I think there's a reference in there to MAGA people, whatever. In that, what she's really saying is that those people calling me up and making those uh, those uh, claims or those those horrible are really people on their side of the fence. That's what she's doing. And there's no reason, Your Honor, ever for a prosecutor to, to, to uh, sit down and go forward with this, uh, this kind of interview. She did it in, in Find the Votes. But then, they, then they, they, what really happened here is this hiding of the relationship. Because in hiding the relationship, they have done such a good job. Mr. Wade uh, filed false documents in his divorce case. When uh, on, on, on May the 23rd, May of uh, 2023, talking about have you ever had sexual relations with a person uh, during the course of the marriage or including the period of separation? He's still married. He doesn't have a divorce decree, but his answer is none. Then he's asked whether or not on any occasions he's entertained or been entertained by uh, uh, by someone for a woman, uh, a, a, a member of the opposite sex, in this case, a woman from the date of the marriage to the present, talking about place and time uh, and all that. What is the answer? None. Why does he do that? He does that because he doesn't want to tell about the relationship that he has with Miss Willis and the benefits that he has gotten and that he gave to her. And what, what these answers are, are absolutely reprehensible that a member of the state bar of Georgia would file these these answers that are that are uh, that are inaccurate. What does uh, what does Miss Wade do? Uh, excuse me, Miss uh, Miss Willis do. Miss Willis on her financial report uh, on whether or not she has gotten anything of a hundred dollars or more in, uh, in value from uh, a, a a prohibited source. The court asked earlier about what a threshold might be. Well, for the financial report, it's $100. That's it. She doesn't report any of all of the benefits that, uh, that, that she received from Mr. Wade. All the trips, all the entertainment, 
all the uh, the, cust- the, uh, the the free nights in the luxury suite uh, in in Aruba. All of that, none of that is here. And they say, oh well, maybe it all balanced out, even though I can't prove it uh, with the cash. Well, that's like saying, did I give the court a uh, Christmas present? Well, maybe I gave the court a Christmas present and the court gave me one back. The court has to fill out a form whether you got a Christmas present from anybody. You say, I got one from Mr. Gillen. You don't say, nah, well, I gave him one back, so it really evens out. They're reports. And because they're false, what they had to do is they had to say, "Uh uh-oh, Miss Merchant has caught us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get... Uh, in our response, we're going to get Mr. Wade to file a false declaration, which he does. His declaration in this case is false. And the evidence showing that that is false as it relates to the timing, you know, and the court asked earlier, why does it matter, uh, you know, if the relationship was before or after November 1, uh, 2021? The answer is they think it's important. And frankly, I do too, because when she's hiring somebody, and she's not telling the people who are going to be paying the tab up to $700,000. Hey, I just hired my boyfriend who's taking me on a trip to the Caribbean and taking me down to Aruba and taking me to California. Hope you don't mind. No disclosure whatsoever. And the money flows off. But because they got caught, they then commit what I think is forensic, an additional component of forensic misconduct, and that is fraud on this court. When they, when, when they uh, file that affidavit, and now it's been proven, I think, beyond virtually any doubt, any doubt that the relationship occurred November uh, 1, uh, 2021, and the benefits that, that uh, were there, and we don't have to run around, and I love the, you know, the, you know we've got all the records showing from, from, from Mr. Wade about the payment for these trips, for the cruises, for the flights, all this stuff. What's the only way is they sat around and met together before they testified and came up with their story? What's the only way that they can save themselves? Pay no attention to the records. Pay no attention to the the airlines and to the flights and vacations and the cruises. Uh, I paid them back in cash. Show us your receipts. Where did you take cash out of the bank? Ever. Oh, I, I don't have any. Well, show us the deposits that he had. Well, uh, uh, never. We, we don't have any. What we have here is a fraud on this court, which has been shown, I think, uh, overwhelmingly by the evidence and overwhelmingly through not only the, the testimony of Yurdy, the testimony of the of uh, of the emails and the text from uh, from uh, Mr. Bradley to Miss Merchant, as well as all the documents that they had no answer to other than the just trust me, gave him money, it evaporated, I don't know where it came from, and he doesn't know what he did with it. Just please trust us and believe us because it's our only way out of the trap that they set for themselves. These people, sadly, and I'm, and I hate to say, I was a former, I, as the court knows, I was a, I was a prosecutor for about three and a half million years, it seems, uh, in the federal building, and I was an assistant DA beforehand. Prosecutors don't act like this. Lawyers don't act like this. These people, Your Honor, is a systematic misconduct, and they need to go. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you.
Your Honor, I'm going to cover a few factual details um, without overly rehashing what has already been said. <clears throat> During the pendency of this investigation in this case, Mr. Wade and Ms. Willis basically lived Robin Leach's lifestyle of the rich and famous. And they did this riding on the backs of the defendants in this case, funded by the taxpayers of Fulton County in the state of Georgia. With the money that Mr. Wade through the contract that Ms. Willis got him. That money flow, that is the personal interest that you asked about. She was personally benefiting from the position, from the job, from the scope of the investigation, from the scope of the indictment and how they conducted it. Um, and we know this, we know from the records that have been submitted before the court that Mr. Wade paid at least $17,095 towards this relationship. Um, that does not even include the various dinners, the day trips that both Wade and Willis admitted to. So that number is likely even higher. We know from the documents that Ms. Willis only paid $1,394 for an airline ticket. Um, we know from Ms. Yurdy, who was pretty much uncontested, there was no evidence presented by the state disputing her time frame that that relationship started in 2019. She saw them kissing, she saw them hugging. Now, whether or not they had sex before January of 2022, I do not know. Um, they admitted sometime in early 2022, and I found it curious that they, Wade and Willis just went straight to the sex. So maybe that's when they started having sex. I do not know. But the relationship predated that. And their combined and overly suggestive um, focus on that is a red herring to this court and to the defense that that's what they want you to focus on. They want you to ignore all the evidence that the relationship predated that. The relationship started in 2019. The relationship continued through 2020. The relationship continued through 2021. Um, looking at the cell phone communications, just in the first 11 months of 2021, over 2,000 calls, almost 9,800 texts. You know, I don't even think love-struck teenagers communicate that much. Um, the November 29th and November 30th escapade. Phone call from Ms. Willis, between Ms. Willis and Mr. Wade, 11.32 that night. Um, shortly after midnight, the phone starts traveling down from where Mr. Wade lives and ends up where Ms. Willis is staying. And he's there until roughly 4.55 a.m. Um, none of the excuses, none of the explanations that Mr. Wade gave experience, going to dinner, um, going to the airport. None of that explains that. I'm pretty sure the Porsche experience isn't open in the middle of the night. I'm pretty sure that there weren't any restaurants that he drove 30 to 45 minutes to go eat at in the middle of the night, right after he talked to Miss Willis. Um, teenagers have a name for those kind of calls and those kind of expades. I won't go into it. Um, but the documentary evidence, the objective evidence undercuts everything that both Wade and Willis said. Um, when you look at Miss Yurdy, again, she unequivocally said that relationship began in 2019. She saw physical evidence of a romantic relationship. 
Mr. Bradley in the text messages, which are substantive evidence, says that that relationship began in 2019. Again, his January, you know, temporary amnesia that somehow was triggered temporarily after Gabe Banks called him, we can question that. But we do have statements from him that specifically said that relationship predated Mr. Wade's appointment. Um, you asked, well, and Mr. Wade, you asked what the materiality would be. How much is enough? Well, clearly 17,000 is enough. Um, but Fulton County has told us, has told Mrs. Willis what the materiality is. It's $100 in a year. She twice signed declarations, certifications that she did not receive any gifts. And even under her strained, <clears throat> her strained explanation, um, there were monies, there were gifts, there were dinners, there were excess contributions flowing her way that exceeded $100. Um, her excuse, or I'm sorry, her explanation, well, I just paid it in cash. That just does not stand a reason. It does not hold up to the light of truth. Um, anyone that has ever been in a money laundering trial, a forfeiture trial, if that's the explanation we give the state, they laugh. Oh, I just gave cash. I have no records for it. I have no source for it. The only thing that she could say that was the source for the money said she was down to 500 to $1,000. The only explanation she have is, well, sometimes I go to Publix and I may get an extra $50. That shows up on your debit card or your credit card. Did they bring those records in? No. Did they bring her bank accounts in? No. Did they bring any documentary, documentary evidence in? No, they did not. And why is that important, Judge? Yes, the burden is ours. But under OCGA, OCGA 24-14-22, if a party has evidence in such party's power and within such party's reach uh, by which he or she may repel a claim, and they had that power, Ms. Willis had that power, Mr. Wade had that power, that they can repel the claim that we have made against them, but they admit to produce it, or if they produce weaker evidence, then you, as the fact finder judge, it is in your power to disregard that and a presumption arises that that documentary evidence that is in their possession that they failed to produce supports our claim. Um, and that is something that the state relies on regularly in criminal trials. And that is something that the court should rely on in this case when formulating um, its factual findings. That both Mr. Wade and Ms. Willis have some difficulty expressing the truth when it comes to their relationship in these cases. We know Mr. Wade lied in his interrogatories multiple times. We know Ms. Willis falsely certified that she hadn't received any gifts from anybody. And Mr. Wade clearly was a prohibited source. He was someone doing business with Fulton County. Anything over $100 in a year, she had to put down and she put zero. Um, and it defies imagination that she could somehow forget about all these trips, all these dinners, all these day trips, and not put that money down. Um, you had asked, I think it was Mr. Gillen, 
did she say in that church speech or anywhere else that the defendants were guilty? And I think she did in that church speech. She said in that church speech, and she was talking about a conversation that she apparently had with God, talking about herself. She said, this leader has a trial conviction rate of 95%. She said, the trial team this leader put together has a conviction rate of 95%. I do not see how anyone that was purposefully intended by Ms. Willis, I do not see how anyone can listen to those two statements and not take that Ms. Willis is telling everyone in that church and everyone that's going to hear that in the media afterwards, that these defendants are guilty. That is what she was saying. She is a prosecutor. She's familiar with the U.S. v. Berger. Every single, pro every single attorney that's ever been a prosecutor is familiar with the dictates, uh, dictates of that U.S. Supreme Court case. That is a foul blow. That is improper. And she violated pretty much every tenant a prosecutor must abide by to seek truth and justice in a particular case. So judge, when you're looking at this, the uncontroverted evidence shows that they had a relationship prior. The uncontroverted evidence shows that Mr. Wade lavishly spent on Ms. Willis. The uncontroverted evidence shows that the money that he was spending on Ms. Willis came from this contract that he had, and I'm not just talking about the contract as a special prosecutor, but there's also those other questionable contracts that no matter whom his partner seemed to be, so God, um, there is a direct financial benefit that Ms. Willis received from this. Um, and Judge, looking back at what Ms. Uh, Judge McBurney said, if merely hosting a fundraiser for a political opponent of a putative defendant creates not only the appearance, but an actual conflict. Then what Ms. Willis has done since then, in this case, creates an actual conflict. But again, as prior counsel has stated, we only need to show the appearance of a conflict. And we have done that by a preponderance of the evidence. In fact, I believe we've shown an actual conflict, but nonetheless, the result should be that Ms. Willis and her office should be disqualified from this case. Uh, we still have a few more minutes. I think Mr. Cromwell may have something to say. Um, thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Good afternoon. Harry MacDougall for Mr. Clark. I'm going to talk further about conflicts and I'm going to assume the most difficult standard for us to meet will full conflict. <clears throat> but before I begin that, I wanna add just a little bit to what has already been said about the standards that apply to prosecutors. Our appellate courts have said often, the administration of the law, and especially that of the criminal law, should, like Caesar's wife, be above suspicion and should be free from all temptation, bias, or prejudice so far as it is possible for our courts to accomplish it. The first occurrence of that that I can find is Nichols v. State more than 100 years ago, 1915. The most recent, Regista v. State in the Supreme Court in 2010, although they don't refer to Caesar's wife. That requirement is also embedded in the prosecutor's statutory oath 
15-18-2, which requires impartially and without fear or favor discharge my duties as district attorney and take only my lawful compensation, so help me God. <clears throat> the general rule on conflicts of interest for lawyers is in Rule of Professional Conduct 1.7. And we all know, it's all drummed into us, that we cannot have a conflict of interest. And if we do, we have to withdraw or we will be disqualified. The basic idea is that a conflict of interest impairs the lawyer's independent professional judgment. That's the test of a conflict and whether it can be waived and whether it's disqualifying. And th that conflict is not just financial. It can be any conflict that impairs your independent professional judgment. And you see that in McLaughlin v. Payne. The court asked what was a personal interest for purposes of disqualification. <clears throat> it's anything that impairs professional judgment. That's reflected in the ABA standards that were quoted uh, by Mr. Merchant, <clears throat> which list uh, the prosecutor's personal, political, financial, professional, business, property, or other interests or relationships. And that's really embedded in the prosecutor's oath to act impartially. And the earlier disqualification order by Judge McBurney was based on political interests, not financial. <clears throat> what my colleagues have described as forensic misconduct is also cognizable as a conflict of interest footnote in the Williams case. The root of all of the problems that we see in this court right now is a conflict of interest arising from their individual personal interests in perpetuating and concealing their relationship. That's the original sin from which all of the other problems flow. There are six different actual conflicts of interest in this case any one of which warrants disqualification, but collectively, practically compelling. First, the financial conflict that's already been covered. <clears throat> Second, the personal ambition, political ambition. There, third, there's a dovetailed or complementary pattern <clears throat> of deceit and concealment of the relationship and the money. Fourth, the speech at the church. Fifth, the motion for protective order that the DA filed <clears throat> in Mr. Wade's divorce case. Sixth, the way the state has conducted the defense of this motion to disqualify, especially the hearing. <clears throat> On the financial piece, the court asked for a limiting principle and asked about materiality. The limiting principle pairs the independent professional judgment of the lawyer that is applied routinely. <clears throat> we have a county code section that flatly prohibits gifts from contractors, period. We have by analogy, the federal bribery statute, which has a threshold of $5,000, 18 USC 666. The court asked about burdens and inferences. The court can draw a negative inference from the state's failure to produce evidence to support the invisible magic cash balancing theory based on State v. Thomas, 311 Georgia 407, <clears throat> particularly footnote 19. 
as to the timing question that the court asked about, <clears throat> there were two contracts for Mr. Wade executed after they acknowledged the relationship began. Each one of them afflicted or conflicted under county and common law. The second conflict is her political ambition for which she was previously chastised by Judge McBurney. And that's also present in this book. The inside book says that they were given, quote, exclusive access to thousands of secret documents, emails, text messages, and audio recordings. The court has twice denied defense motions to unseal special purpose grand jury materials. She helped herself to get the glory of this book. I introduced certified copies of a number of county code sections. I'm not gonna walk through those, but I'll tell you why they matter. The stack of law from the state constitution down to the county ordinances imposes a regime on the DA under which she has three obligations. She has to go to the county commission to get approval to pay him like she did. She cannot accept gifts from a prohibited source. She has to disclose the gifts that she received. She evaded all of those requirements. Section 2-69 of the county code prohibited sources, which he was, there's no boyfriend exception. The disclosure forms, the evidence is sufficient for you to find that her disclosure form for 2022 is false and that it is a false writing. That's an actual conflict of interest between her duty, legal duty of disclosure, her legal duty of candor as a prosecutor, and her private and personal interests in concealing the relationship, concealing the gifts, and keeping the gravy train rolling for as long as possible. His part in the pattern of concealment is a story you see in many divorce cases. The husband is hiding things from his wife. How much money he's making, the other woman, and what he's spending on the other woman. And he got on that stand, he lied in his interrogatories, and then he got on the stand and he lied about lying in the interrogatories. And the lawyers for the DA, the DA's office, they just sat there and let him do it. They did nothing to correct obviously perjured testimony in and of its qualification of every one of them. The reason they lied and covered it up was to avoid the trouble they're in right now. That served their personal interests to the detriment of their public duties as prosecutors. The speech at the church. I want to focus on why she did that. Mr. Gillen talked about that. She did it to deflect attention from her own misconduct and that of Mr. Wade. She violated her public duty as a prosecutor to serve her personal interests and the personal interests of her boyfriend. That is a disqualifying conflict between her personal interests and her public duty that is actual, operational, and materialized, and it rests on undisputed facts. The next thing that she did that was a disqualifying conflict of interest was the emergency motion for protective order that she filed in the divorce. I filed a certified copy of that as Exhibit 37. 
she sought a protective order under the apex doctrine on the grounds that she's the DA. And the whole filing is expressly predicated on her status as DA. In fact, she never lets you forget it. She says it 27 times in 12 pages. In that filing, speaking as DA, she said, the circumstances, quote, suggest that defendant Joycelyn Wade is using the legal process to harass and embarrass District Attorney Willis, and in doing so is obstructing and interfering with an ongoing criminal investigation. In the prayer for relief on page 11, she asked for six months to, quote, complete a review of the filings in the instant case, investigate and depose relevant witnesses with regard to the interference and obstruction this motion contends. There's no sugarcoating it. That's a clear violation of rule of professional conduct 3.4H, which prohibits lawyers from making threats of criminal prosecution to gain advantage in a civil case. She abused her power. She abused her position to threaten her boyfriend's wife with criminal prosecution to gain advantage for herself and her boyfriend in her boyfriend's divorce. She violated her public duties not to make that threat in order to serve her private personal interests and those of Mr. Wade. Another actual operational conflict. The last category is the conduct of the defense of this hearing. <clears throat> there were a lot of objections made based on attorney-client privilege during Mr. Bradley's testimony. Most of those objections were made by the state, but the privilege being asserted does not belong to the state. It belongs to Mr. Wade. That shows that the DA's office is serving the personal interests of the DA and Mr. Wade in carrying out further concealment and cover-up of their relationship and not the cause of justice they are sworn to serve. That is a conflict of interest. It's a continuation of the wrongful pattern of concealment and cover-up that they've engaged in since the beginning, but now they've enlisted the entire office in the enterprise. In the written response to the motion to disqualify, they said this, and I quote, should be absolutely clear, there is evidence that D.A. Willis derived any financial benefit from Mr. Wade. That's on page 15, flat out false. 10 lawyers in this case put their name on that, starting with the D.A. So throw another log on the bonfire of conflicts of interest So throw another law after The problem here is the DA cannot distinguish between her personal interests and ambitions on the one hand and her public duties as a prosecutor on the other, and apparently neither can, neither can anyone else in their office. Of the six conflicts I've identified, only one is subject to a conflict in the evidence. This is a case study in what happens when you operate under a conflict of interest. It's put an irreparable stain on the case. Think of the message that would be sent if they were not disqualified. If this is tolerated, we'll get more of it. 
This office is a global laughing stock because of their conduct. They should be disqualified and the case should be just. Your Honor, there's not much uh, oxygen left in the room. Um, we we, we uh, delineated the times based on the whole presentation. Is would, would Your Honor consider some time for us in rebuttal? No. Okay, well then, <laughs> could I reserve what I had five minutes for sure. rebuttal? That's fine. All right, thank you, Your Honor. All right, uh, let's take a quick five. And we'll be back at 2.40ish to hear from the state. Thank you. Got a little break coming up here. Man, Cromwell was on fire. Dude, that guy crushed it. What a strong finish, man. That was an awesome finish. 100%. What do you think, Ash? You're muted, by the way. Sorry, I had to get my sound fixed i thought it was good i have um some notes of key moments if you guys want to talk them through of course you yeah. do of course we do. do it <laughs> what you got um all right so it, i'm gonna go back from kind of the end of what we just saw i thought one of the strongest points was they lied about lying and did nothing to correct the actual perjury and that's important because perjury is a pretty big deal in um the law and like we've said in this coverage before it's a big deal for anybody on the stand it's a it's a it's a significantly greater deal i would argue for the district attorney and the juris jurisdictional county and the lead prosecutor in the case can you guys hear me okay people are saying that yes it's bad no okay. you're great um, yeah. so um I, I think that that was well put on the record i also thought that it was very interesting when he talked about um Rule 3.4H, that's, I sent you the link to that, Brian, um, in, in our private chat, but that is uh, present, it's um, up to the top. A lawyer shall not, this is rules of the professional conduct in the Georgia bar, uh, and it's, it's the same as the American bar, except there's no H. The American bar stops at F, and Georgia goes to H, and H says, a lawyer shall not present, participate in presenting, or threaten to present criminal charges solely to obtain an advantage in a civil matter. The maximum penalty for a violation of this rule is disbarment, is what the rule says. And um, that is that was alleged in the context of her filing um, the the motion that she filed earlier on with regards to the the divorce case. And they're saying, I think, that that was in a kind of threatening his wife, Joyce mm -hmm. Lynn Wade. That's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. That's a. That's a big one. It's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like how they focus on the fact that uh, prosecutors should be held to a higher standard than all their lawyers. I think that's a really important thing that needs to be flushed out. Um, just having conversations with lawyers over the years, it always frustrated me when you bring up like moments of corruption. You bring up the corruption of the system and you always kind of get the oh, same Fanny's response. Back in, Fanny's back in the courtroom. 
Oh, look at that. that there she is. Yeah, that's her in the red in the red dress. In the red, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to interrupt you there, Gordon. No, no, I mean, and basically it's like lawyers would kind of roll their eyes and be like, you know, they don't want to hear about corruption. They don't want to hear about that stuff. And it's not because they're bad people or they're unethical or whatever. It's just because like they recognize that it's not their ju- number one, it's not really their purview to like fix that. That's really more of like lawmakers need to fix that. And then, um, although I would argue that, I would say that that's not true. And then the other thing is just like, they don't think they're, you can ever fix it. They don't think you can fix the corruption because it's so overwhelming and it's so pervasive and it's everywhere. And so they feel like it's like a red herring to get focused on like the corruption and get like worked up over it. So I, I like that we are holding prosecutors accountable and we're saying we need, we expect more from them. They should not be allowed to walk into a courtroom and lie to the public and lie to the court. That should be, I think, a dis, like you should be disbarred for doing that. If you allow a witness to get on the stand and lie and say things and perjure themselves and you don't stand up and correct the record, you should face like the worst penalties imaginable for a prosecutor, for a lawyer um, when you're a prosecutor and you're doing that. So um, those are things that I really want to see flushed out beyond just this one case. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so just just real quick, I mean, my my takeaway was Cromwell was phenomenal. The six points of, of interest was 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 clutch like really well said the other the other thing i really liked was the guy before him i can't remember his name but arguing that if we ever used the excuse that oh we paid you back in cash in a laundering case and that was your only evidence you'd be laughed out of a courtroom you know using that as your defense and what what i think he missed was take it a step further these are attorneys they got to know better than that you know it's not like a normal joe like me and gordon might be going back and forth in cash and we're like okay we don't understand that we have to document all this all this stuff is going to have to have receipts and everything they knew that they have to know that they have to attest forward. to it they right. have to actually mm-hmm. sign and file that they have no um you know improper relationships haven't accepted improper gifts you guys heard uh 18 usc 666 right that was that was a good one well that's directly relevant to what we're talking about here and that states that uh being an agent of and it goes through a whole bunch of different types of agents but the government basically uh subsection b of this says one or subsection one sub b says corruptly solicits or demands for the benefit of any person or accepts or agrees to accept anything of value from any person intending to be influenced or rewarded in connection with any business transaction or series of transactions of such organization, government, or agency involving anything of value of $5,000 or more. And then subsection two corruptly gives offers or agrees to give anything of value to any person with the intent to influence a reward or agent, uh, you know, of the government effectively. Um, So there is a threshold of $5,000. You heard them dancing a little bit around what is material, Um, you know, and and he said, oh, even if it's $6, then I think it's material. Um, So there is, there does appear to be standard. All right. We're back in. Okay. All right. Next time we come back, we got to do rants. Yeah, that's what I was. I was going to try and do that real quick here, but all right. While they're waiting, just real right, quick, we're back on the record. Up, oh, never mind. Never mind. Stay ready. Uh, yes, Judge. I'm just trying to get to where I can share my screen. We need to add you as a host. Then, what's your uh, profile name on the Zoom? 
your your screen name on the Zoom. Your Gorilla there. Grips. Just making sure. Bear with us. Do you need it right away? Well played. <laughs> so good afternoon, Your Honor. Start with um, some of the things that were addressed uh, over the last hour and a half. Uh, first, beginning with um, something Mr. Uh, Merchant referenced as it related to uh, the comments that the state made in regards to the good faith basis uh, in which was uh, submitted to the court. Uh, in which defense counsel claimed the evidence uh, would show. And I would strongly bring to the court's attention that the claims that were made were material misrepresentations. And what I will tell to, or what I will say to the court um, and why I say that to the court is because the representations that were made by counsel was that Ms. Daisha Young, Ms. Sonia Allen, Mr. Dexter Bonds, uh, Investigator Hill, Investigator Green, uh, Investigator um, Ricks, all of these people would be called and Mr. Bradley would be able to impeach their knowledge by saying that they, he specifically in, their, in his presence or to him said that Ms. Willis and uh, Mr. Wade were in a romantic relationship and that Ms. Uh, Willis and Mr. Wade were cohabitating, that they all and I would submit to the court, we didn't hear from any of those individuals. Mr. Bradley impeached no one. And I say no one because he did not impeach Mr. Wade. In order to properly impeach a witness, you have to confront the witness with the specific statements. Mr. Wade, and you can look back at the YouTube of the entire uh, hearings of the last couple, couple days, Mr. Wade wasn't once confronted with a statement that he claimed or said, or that is claimed that he said to Mr. Bradley. The way you properly impeach somebody, you have to get, you have to confront the witness. Here would be Mr. Wade. And once he makes a statement that you believe to be inconsistent and you have a witness who can prove that inconsistency, inconsistency, that's when you call that witness. And when Mr. Wade was on the stand, not once was he asked, did you tell Mr. Bradley this in a confidential um, conversation in your, in your um, conference room? Uh, that was not covered under attorney-client privilege. That was not asked. The specifics of that conversation was not asked. So any testimony that Mr. Bradley testified to is impermissible. It is improper impeachment because they did not confront Mr. Wade with it. Shut up. That's what would begin with the comments that Mr. Merchant made about me um, referencing his wife as, as lying. I, I never called Miss Merchant, a liar. I never used those words. I don't know why she made the material misrepresentations. It could be because Mr. Bradley lied to her. I don't know the reason. So, but I can submit to the court that those were material misrepresentations that were made to this court uh, on the day uh, a few Mondays ago, as everyone was arguing uh, the motions to quash certain subpoenas. I'd also bring to the court's attention that during that motion to quash subpoenas, uh, certain subpoenas, uh, Ms. Yurdy's attorney uh, appeared, Mr. Partridge, and he made very clear on that Zoom that Ms. Uh, Yurdy had absolutely no knowledge of a romantic relationship and absolutely no knowledge of cohabitation. Those are those were the specific references that he made. So what I would submit to the court is those are those are considered adoptive omissions. 
um, that uh, his client has made based on the statements he made uh, because of the representations she made to him. So, and I know that sounds convoluted, but what I would say to the court is, Ms. Yerdy told Mr. Partridge, because Mr. Partridge, she had absolutely no information about romantic relationship and she had absolutely no information as in regards to. So, but wait, are you making an argument? I should make inferences based. Now these would be attorney client privileges or, or communications. Then she's well, communicating with Mr. Partridge about what her upcoming testimony is. That's why she's hired him. And you're telling me I should infer things based on her communications to him. Absolutely. Because they're not attorney client communications anymore. When he discloses them to the court and everybody else, um, as they watch the Zoom and attend the hearing. The difference is, is there was no request to go in camera. There was no request um, to go uh, or to have a private conversation with you uh, as was done with Mr. Uh, Bradley. That would have been the proper procedure. So yes, I'm asking you to infer that 100%. I'm asking you to infer that her testimony was at best inconsistent. Because the testimony of Ms. Um, Yurdy when she testified was vague very little description when uh asked uh in a very leading manner uh is is it true or or uh, do you know that miss uh willis and miss uh, mr wade were in a relationship from 2019 uh into uh the time you were uh, fired for, or excuse me you were forced to resign uh, from the district attorney's office in march of 2022 uh, she said yes and then uh further when pressed uh, by mr sadow uh, he talks about why she believed they were in a, a relationship. And uh, what was interesting um, from Ms. Yurdy's testimony that they were uh, pretty close friends up until um, she left the DA's office, that she asserted to the court that on a yearly basis, uh, Ms. Willis said, I'm in a relationship with Mr. Wade in 2019. Oh, by the way, I want to tell you again in 2020, because we're in a new year, I'm still in a relationship with Mr. Wade. And again, in 2021, uh, the assertion is uh, Miss Willis then went back to Miss Yerdy and confirmed, hey, I just want to reconfirm uh, me and Mr. Wade are still in a relationship. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. More importantly, uh, when Mr. Sadow asked her about um, why she believed that uh, they were in a romantic relationship based on her own observations, he, she said something he said. He actually asked her, do you see him kissing or hugging? She said yes, but there was no uh, description or qualification about when it occurred, um, what she actually saw, or saw, excuse me, was it a kiss on the cheek, things of that nature. So I would ask you to um, frame her testimony from that standpoint when you're uh, addressing her credibility, as the court is gonna do with each and every witness that you heard um, during the testimony of um, all the witnesses during the hearing. I'm gonna see if my screen will share.
Now, um, now I want to talk a little bit about the, the standard uh, and the burden um, here uh, in this instance as it relates to uh, defense counsel and the claims that they have made in the motion to disqualify. And as I was doing a whole lot of research, uh, I came upon, upon this law review uh, article uh, from uh, a Cornell uh, scholarship uh, reading or uh, publication. And they made very clear that courts have been relatively reluctant to exercise their power to disqualify prosecutors for any reason. And um, that goes along with the standard um, what the state would um, submit to the court is that the defense has to show an actual conflict. And in this instance, they have to show an, the actual conflict would be that Miss uh, Willis uh, received a financial benefit or gain and did it based uh, or got it based upon the, the outcome of the case. It doesn't make any sense. It makes absolutely no sense. And during the three days of the extensive tes testimony of all of the witnesses and the prolonged uh, examinations um, of the witnesses by multiple the defense counsel, they still got nowhere. We're in the same position we were in on Monday. The same assertions that were made uh, on Monday have no answers today as we before your honor. They were not able to provide any evidence as to uh, or to the contrary of Miss Willis and Miss Wade's assertions of when they were began. There's absolutely no evidence that contradicts that the relationship did not begin later than uh, around March of 2022, Your Honor. I'd further uh, submit to the court because of this failure that their assertion or their request that one, the indictment be dismissed. There's absolutely no evidence that the defendants in this case, their due process rights uh, have been harmed in absolutely any way. There was zero evidence, not a single shred of evidence was produced through any of the exhibits or the witness testimony showing how their constitutional rights, their due process rights were all were at all affected by the relationship that began in March of 2022 with Ms. Uh, Willis and Mr. Wade. And because of that, the motion to disqualify should be uh, denied. And Ms. Uh, Willis, as the district attorney of Fulton County, and Mr. Wade, um, as the special prosecutor assigned to this case, should be allowed to remain on this case and continue and continue to prosecute uh, the case uh, to the end, Your Honor, until the trial uh, is set by the court and is uh, to begin. Now, the issues, obviously, um, you've heard a lot from defense counsel as to uh, what the issues are for you to, um, I guess, determine. And here it would be the state's contention is that you must find that there's an actual conflict if you uh, were or are to come to the conclusion uh, that you should disqualify Ms. Willis and the district attorney's office. And um, and looking at uh, and uh, what um, I think you're talking about Business Ventura. It's uh, McGlynn v. State, M-C-G-L-Y-N-N v. State, 342 Georgia Appeal, uh, 170. Um, it's a 2017 case. In that case, as it talks about the standard of proof um, that the defense or the burden that the defense must uh, show and go to show an actual conflict is they say it's a high standard of proof, which is definitely um, not a preponderance of the evidence, which is a much lower uh, burden uh, for uh, any party who's trying to meet uh, that standard of preponderance. But it's very it's uh, clear that what it, the standard is, is that is a high standard of proof. 
um, for both um, when determining whether there's an actual conflict and when there's forensic misconduct um, that is found, Your Honor. And I, I want to go through uh, some of the cases uh, that um, defense counsel has uh, referenced that they <laughs> argued um, here today and in their uh, filings. Um, and I guess the bright line standard or um, the standard and the grounds for which um, disqualification um, is appropriate uh, for your honor to be determining um, in all of the cases as it relates to disqualifying the electric the elected district attorney is the, you either find um, there's a conflict of interest or that there's been some sort of forensic misconduct those are i guess the two areas that your honor um that is in your purview when you are looking to um, resolve an issue uh, regarding disqualification. Now, in a recent case, Levy State, which is uh, 224 Georgia, and I'm sorry, Lexus uh, 31. Um, it's a February um, of 2024 um, case um, here out of our appellate courts. And uh, in that um, case, uh, Justice Pinson uh, wrote that a trial court did not abuse its discretion by failing to disqualify an assistant district attorney absent an actual conflict of interest. Uh, and that is the case that um, was uh, ruled on by uh, the Georgia Court of Appeals um, about a month ago, Your Honor. Now, uh, the case, the cases in which um, defense counsel um, has have relied on in their briefs and here today, um, I would submit to the court, uh, the sites are misleading, um, <clears throat> are inapplicable, and some of them actually support uh, the state's position. And what I would say to you is that the defendants, uh, in many instances, combine language, the multiple cases, and kind of what I would say is misstates the law as it relates to uh, what the law uh, or what is required in order for uh, an elected district attorney uh, and their office to be disqualified. And what I would submit to the court let's is- go, Let's go back to that. Show me how. Yes. Show you how. So I think the first one they cited was battle versus the state. Certainly yes. a conflict of interest or the appearance of impropriety can be the grounds of disqualification. Well. And there were a number of these cases that seem to exclusively rely on the appearance of impropriety. Right. Well, so they, they acknowledge that there's some ambiguity here that sometimes Whitworth and Whitworth gets cited to Ventura and we've got this quote that comes up where it's just they only cite to an actual conflict that must be involved. They, they acknowledge the ambiguity. You're saying there's no ambiguity whatsoever. I, I am saying that. And why, why I am saying that, why I would submit that to the court is in all of those cases, they do reference the appearance of an impropriety, but they reference that because they all an actual conflict in each one of those cases. So your position would be your review of the case law. There's never been an appellate opinion that relied only on an appearance of a propriety. As it relates to a, a, a prosecutor or a district attorney, yes, that, that is what I'm saying. What I would say is in those cases, they do reference the fact that there is an appearance of impropriety, but they reference that fact because when you have an actual conflict, there's always an, uh, an appearance of impropriety. And those are what those cases stand for. And so I guess that is the main example of um, what I reference as they kind of combine 
the language from separate and different cases and tell you that the standard is an appearance of impropriety. And I would submit to the court that is not the standard. And um, in uh, my first reading, um, like uh, your honor, I, I did uh, notice that the cases each um, reference the appearance of impropriety, but also that that appearance arose from the fact that the court found an actual conflict in each one of those cases. Um, so I won't belabor the point uh, in going through um, all of the <laughs> cases that the defense had cited, but what I would submit to the court and, and reading those cases is that um, I found um, that they kind of fell into five categories, that some that didn't concern disqualification at all, some that determined, or, uh, that were about, um, I call it divided loyalty, which is um, a conflict that arises from uh, representing a, um, becoming a, a prosecutor and then having represented um, the defendant uh, prior to uh, becoming a prosecutor. And then whether there's an actual personal interest in the outcome. And then uh, others talk about uh, whether the defendant was denied a fundamentally fair trial um, at the conclusion and, and the, uh, of the case uh, after conviction. And these are some of the cases that uh, defense counsel had cited um, within uh, their brief that had absolutely no application uh, to um, the issue that we're here before your honor today. Uh, the first, uh, McIver v. State has nothing to do uh, or is, has nothing related to the disqualification of anyone. I, mean, I think some of these are just relating to kind of aspiring for broad language about standards to prosecutors. So point taken there. But if there are more... All right, keep going. So um, as it relates to uh, one of the cases that was referenced here earlier um, and is, is also in uh, some of the briefing uh, by defense counsel is um, the uh, Rejected B State, which is 287 Georgia uh, 542. And all of, all of the cases um, that fall under this what I would uh, call category is about a uh, attorney who formally prosecuted a defendant uh, in, uh, I guess, the same type of case or the same case um, or uh, similar charges, uh, and that would be why uh, the courts were, were excuse me, the courts found that disqualification uh, would be necessary because of the relationship that existed between um, the former client and um, now person who's being prosecuted, Your Honor. So the, next, the next series of slides uh, just goes through uh, what has been uh, addressed uh, as it relates to the standard um, that is required uh, when dealing with um, the issue of disqualification uh, and um, the state would contend and submit to the court that it, the defense must show an actual uh, conflict in order to uh, have uh, the district attorney disqualified. And that actual conflict has form of showing that Ms. Willis in this instance uh, received a financial benefit or gain in relation to uh, the outcome of the case. Um, like many of the cases that are involve personal interest, uh, Your Honor, it's all based on a contingency fee um, where um, how much they're paid or a bonus, for example, um, is dependent on, uh, upon the outcome of the case. That's how uh, it, 
One is to show that there's a personal interest in the case. We have none of that here. And I would submit to the court, we have absolutely no evidence that Ms. Willis received any financial gain or benefit. Um, the testimony was that Ms. Willis paid uh, all of the money back in cash as related to the trips. And if didn't pay back in cash, it was um, all right. Let me let me let me let me explore this one a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, in addition to you know, you're saying it's only an actual conflict. You're are you also saying that it's only if a financial interest is affecting uh, the final result, the outcome? That's the only one we should be worried about. Or is it that the prosecution as a whole is what we should be looking at in terms of a stake? So, what I'm thinking of, I'm just going to try and come up with some hypos here. What if ADAs are given a bonus for every motion to suppress they win, $1,000 per Fourth Amendment claim they win. Well, now they've got an officers is lying not to tell you about it because they want to win that motion to suppress. But maybe that doesn't affect the outcome because you can win a motion to suppress or lose it. And that doesn't decide whether, you know, it's going to be a guilty or not guilty verdict. But doesn't that affect the prosecution of the case, if not the outcome? Yes, I would, I would definitely agree that that would be an instance where disqualification would um, it's be necessary and appropriate because it's it's a situation that involves a contingency fee. And I would submit to the court that it actually does end up affecting. It could based on how important the motion to suppress is, right? right. But if it's some immaterial, you know, I don't know. Um, but I guess, so you're saying it's maybe not so much just the whether it's a guilty or not guilty dismissal, no process at the end of the day. It is actually the conduct of the prosecution that should be looked at throughout the course of the prosecution. Correct, as it relates to how it affects the prosecution, which I would submit to the court ultimately is going to affect the the end outcome of the case. If you have a contingency fee based on winning, or how you know if you win a a motion to suppress, and uh, it's can you know if you win, you get you know a certain a bonus, as your honor referenced. Uh, I think that that is ultimately going to affect the end outcome of the case because, as your honor just said, since where an officer is lying or that where there isn't a good faith to go forward with that motion, the prosecutor would go forward with regardless because of the contingency fee, which not only affects the, the prosecution at that point of the proceedings, but ultimately is going to affect the entire case. Because if um, they were to win a motion to suppress, or uh, I guess the motion would be denied and the evidence wasn't suppressed, knowing that they didn't have a good faith basis to go forward affects the ultimate outcome of the case. Um, so I think it's twofold, uh, as your honor has referenced. Um, I think it, it's at that part of the, I guess, the procedure of the proceedings um, would definitely qualify for a reason um, necessary to disqualify um, a prosecuting agency. But ultimately, that action during the procedure will lead to um, the ultimate outcome of the case uh, being or hinging upon uh, a contingency fee uh, like uh, the ones uh, in the cases uh, referenced by uh, counsel and uh, the state that are on the screen. So, and, um, so getting into the language again, what you just had up there with greater amusements mm -hmm. and amusement sales, greater amusements is one of those. You refer to the appearance of conflict as dicta. Why do you, why do you think that's, that's dictated? I think the quote from that one is, it guarantees at least the appearance of a conflict of interest. Why is that dicta? It seems very central to the holding in the case. Because in... I don't disagree with your honor, but in that case, an actual conflict was found and the appearance- and They didn't find that. I, I would I would disagree with your honor. I, I would, my reading of the case is that an actual conflict was found, but because of that actual conflict, an appearance of impropriety was seen. 
Um, and, and that's that's the reference um, or why the state referenced uh, that case um, in relation to our, the argument that an actual conflict is required. And the series of cases, uh, Young, uh, that was referenced by defense counsel as well as Nichols of uh, the state uh, are both instances where uh, there's a personal interest in the case uh, due to um, the uh, situation and, and where at one point they were opposing parties. And of course, there's a, a personal interest or stake uh, as it relates to uh, prosecuting um, an opposing party in a civil claim, um, which are what both of those cases uh, reference, which um, shows that there's an actual conflict um, of interest that relates to the personal gain of the specific uh, prosecuting agency. And, and what do you make of Nichols' reference to, you know, it's an older case. Sometimes the language can be uh, what we're not accustomed to seeing, but there's, you know, they, they, they refer to the metaphor of, of Caesar's wife. And generally when there is a ethical standard, uh, that's something that goes beyond an eth uh, just an actual conflict, right? Isn't the beyond reproach getting more into appearance world? Is it getting beyond? No, isn't 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 getting into uh, the appearance aspect of things when we're talking about Caesar's wife? But I, I think it goes beyond that based on the language of, of of the holding in that case, where it literally says that the individual had a personal interest in obtaining a fee by forcing a settlement uh, in the civil case and using the criminal case as leverage. So that's not an that's not an appearance of an of impropriety. That is an actual conflict of interest, in which arises because of the individual's personal stake in the in the end outcome um, of the case, Your Honor. So that's that's how I would uh, differentiate. Um, I guess the uh, representations of defense counsel as it relates to the the standard um, or the burden that must be shown um, and why the state would submit to the court uh, and uh, the most uh, recent ruling out of the Georgia um, uh, appellate courts that an actual conflict uh, is required to be shown. So I'm going to skip through these series of slides because you've heard all about Whitworth. So I go back to uh, what we referenced um, earlier and what's been referenced by all parties that uh, the grounds in which um, a district attorney can be uh, disqualified is where um, a conflict of interest um, is found and uh, where there's uh, forensic misconduct um, that is that is found. Those are the two grounds uh, that are to uh, be, I guess, are within the purview of the court as it relates to the issues here. Um, and again, I, I go back to uh, the most recent case um, that uh, was Justice Pinson uh, wrote about uh, and that it, it there must be that by failing to disqualify the assistant district attorney um, absent an actual conflict of interest. I think the language there uh, is very clear and I think it's very controlling and I, I think it's purposeful. Uh, I would submit to the court because an actual conflict of interest is what is required in order for a district attorney um, to be uh, disqualified um, because uh, the cases um, make very clear um, and through the precedent um, relating to this issue that a disqualification of a district attorney is the is the last for a lack of better words dis ditch effort uh, that should as it relates to the, the court in curing uh, certain conflicts that may arise um, I think the case law is very clear 
that every effort is supposed to be made uh, instead of, or I guess in lieu of um, disqualifying the district attorney unless an actual conflict of interest is what's found, Your Honor, and it can't be cured. <laughs> so um, what I would reference to the court um, as uh, was brought up um, earlier in Lyons v. State 271, Georgia 639, um, a 1990 case, 1999 case where it talked about a theoretical or speculative conflict um, will not impugn a conviction, uh, meaning that speculation, conjecture, things of that nature, assumptions are not enough uh, for uh, anything to arise uh, to an actual conflict. And what I would submit to the court as well, that that goes to the fact that what it has to be shown is an actual conflict. Um, if it's speculation. Is, is there any qualifier there though that it, that's in a post-conviction context? No. We're talking about, you know, competent evidence, obviously in a pretrial phase here. I've, I've wondered how much important to give that sentence when we're in a pretrial realm. That's, 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 assessing whether to overturn a conviction. And usually that's, you know, kind of an entirely different standard where we assess as a totality, was there a fair trial? Is there harmless error? I know there's no harmless error when it comes to disqualifications, but just a thought, if you have any reactions. Well, I think uh, what your honor just said is, is pretty um, on point in the sense that um, if, a, if it's found that, um, I guess the, the trial court either applied the wrong standard or should have disqualified the district attorney. It uh, leads to uh, an automatic reversal, like you said, and it goes back to the trial court. And I think that is um, very enlightening in the sense that that's only done if an actual conflict is shown. And the fact that it can't just be theoretical, speculative, or assumptions that would lead to the appearance of impropriety, impropriety the appearance of a conflict that would lead to. Um, I mean, I guess what I'm getting that. I'm, I'm borrowing kind of from, uh, as we've been doing the other pretrial motions, special demurs seem to get different treatment pretrial and post-trial. Post-trial, they get more of a pass unless you can show some issues. And I'm wondering if that applies here with disqualification. Mode. Well, and I would, but I don't have the answer to that. Well, what I would um, also say, and I, I don't remember the exact line, uh, but I know um, there in Judge McBurney's order, he does address some of the concerns that as it relates to um, the standard um, as it's applied post-conviction versus pre-trial um, in during pre-trial issues. And what I would say to the court is that. Uh, so you're saying that in support? Because I didn't think the state was all that pleased with, what, with the, you know, the analysis he Applied. Well, what I'm citing legal analysis that is. What, well, I'm I'm citing what you specifically referenced as to a, the standard that is to be applied pre-trial uh, and post-trial, whether it makes a difference. And what I would say to the court is the answer is no, as it relates to the speculative nature of um, the allegations or the claims made by defense counsel, um, as it relates to um, whether a conflict actually exists. Your Honor. And, what I can't do at the moment is point exactly to the page um, at the end of the state's argument. I can give you the page number as it relates to Judge McBurney's order. I think I know what you're talking about, the footnote where he references the appearance standard. Yeah. All right, I'm looking at it. Um, further, uh, in Lamb 267, Georgia 41, um, uh, on page 42, it's a 1996 case. 
um, where the court says, nevertheless, the conflict must be palpable and have a substantial basis. In fact, a theoretical or speculative conflict will not impugn a conviction which is supported by competent evidence. Now, I understand uh, as it relates to uh, the post-conviction factor um, or the, the status of the case being in post-conviction um, based on your honor's earlier inquiry, but I would uh, submit to the court that uh, as it relates to the issue of um, disqualification, that the standard is the same, whether it's post-conviction or pretrial. Um, in uh, Bloomfield v. Bornstein, which is 247 Georgia 406, it's a 1981 case. In that case, it says the appellees have not shown us a case where a per se rule was applied to disqualify an attorney on the basis of an appearance of impropriety alone. The Georgia cases cited by the appellee do not stand for the proposition that a trial judge is authorized in Georgia to disqualify an attorney solely on the basis of an appearance of propriety, which uh, further goes to the state's um, submission to the court that the standard is uh, that an actual conflict must be shown and that conflict um, that arises shows that there's a personal stake of the district attorney um, as it relates to um, their, pers or their personal uh, financial gain um, that's being alleged. <clears throat> so in uh, the case that's been referenced, uh, all parties here today, Whitworth v. State 275 Georgia, um, uh, Appeal 790, uh, to, no, 2005 case. In that case, it says Whitworth's complaints are largely based on speculation and conjecture. Applying any evidence standard to the record, it is clear that the trial court did not abuse its discretion in denying Whitworth's motion to disqualify uh, Morgan based upon his personal interest uh, in his conviction. Aren't we past the speculation and conjecture aspect of this, though? I mean, the, the original and the core of the financial allegation was that there is a relationship and that money has changed hands. There's maybe still an open question of where the ledger stands. But I think it was conceded that that balance could run in one way or in, in, in the district attorney's favor. Is that contested? Yes. What's, what's not contested is that a relationship did develop. Right. Um, between and, and, that, and that purchases were made back and forth. That's the state's position. That it's the state's position, but they were made back and forth. The purchases were made back and forth um, either to... Uh, equal the money that was spent by one party or the other. And if that wasn't done, cash was exchanged uh, in order to um, equal the or uh, paid by either one of the parties. Right. But that's that's a facted issue, whether it was, you know, split even or whether it goes a little bit one way or another or whether it's all the way $10,000 one way or another. That's a that's a fact and issue as a result of the hearing. But it's no longer just the theory that money changed hand is no longer speculation or conjecture. Well, I, I agree that money actually changed hands is not um, speculation and conjecture, but whether that money that changed hands had any um, financial benefit or gain to the district attorney, that is all speculation and conjecture. I would submit to the court, absolutely all speculation and conjecture to um, harass and honestly embarrass the district attorney based on some of the questions that were asked that had absolutely nothing to do with the proceedings that we were here. For example, the lien on her uh, alleged house. 
that that was highly irrelevant, had nothing to do with the proceedings and the exchange of money between uh, the district attorney and um, uh, Mr. Wade. Uh, the point of that line of questioning was to, again, embarrass and harass the district attorney in a way uh, that was very public uh, and in a way um, that was to um, impugn uh, her character as it relates to um, that line of questioning in front of the court, uh, in front of uh, anyone watching uh, the proceedings uh, as it unfolded. And the language in uh, Whitworth, I would again submit to the court, requires that an actual conflict must be shown, which is why the reference to speculation and conjecture is a uh, reference um, because speculation and conjecture leads to or equals uh, an appearance of impropriety, not necessarily an actual conflict, uh, which uh, I submit to the court is what is required based on uh, the case law. So in uh, State v. Sutherland, which is 190 Georgia Appeals 606, it's a 1989 case, um, and it says, while the prosecuting officers should see that no unfair advantage is taken of the accused, yet he is not a judicial officer. Those who are required to exercise judicial functions in the case are the judge and the jury. The public prosecutor is necessarily a partisan in the case. If we were compelled to proceed with the same uh, circumspection as the judge and jury, there would be uh, an end to the conviction of criminals, uh, which goes to the premise that the uh, appearance of impropriety is to uh, apply to uh, judges, not prosecutors. Because if that standard was to be, to be applied uh, in the manner in which uh, the Sutherland case uh, is referencing, then there would never be a criminal prosecution because it's always going to uh, appear biased as it relates to um, getting justice for the victims or righting uh, the wrong as it relates to uh, the, the crimes in which uh, the defendant is um, been indicted or accused of. <laughs> so uh, I want to move into um, I guess the evidence uh, that your honor um, saw and heard uh, during um, the last couple of days, um, three total days of testimony um, as it relates to the witness, the witnesses you heard from um, Ms. Yurdy, who the state would contend is a disgruntled for former employee. You heard from Terrence Bradley, also um, someone who uh, is a disgruntled former partner. Um, the text messages in the state's uh, opinion show that he is vengeful. You heard from his own um, testimony here uh, sitting before the court that he all he did was speculate and uh, any information that he had or and garnered and then passed on to Ms. Merchant was pure uh, mere speculation. Um, I believe he said that over and over again when asked um, if he had personal knowledge. Um, my recollection is around 15 times, he said he had absolutely no personal knowledge of a romantic relationship uh, between the DA uh, and Mr. Wade. You also heard from um, the special prosecutor, uh, Mr. Wade, a, a former judge. Um, you heard uh, from the 80th governor uh, of the state of Georgia, um, Roy Barnes. Uh, you heard from the first female uh, elected district attorney of uh, Fulton County. 
and you heard from her father who was a, a 40 plus year practicing attorney um, in good standing when he um, left uh, the practice of law. And what I would submit to the court is that Miss Yurdy's um, testimony was nothing more than inconsistent at best. Uh, based on uh, what I uh, referenced to the court um, earlier as it relates to uh, the representations that were made by her counsel prior to. Are those in evidence? Would, would his responses during a motion to quash, which weren't subject to cross-examination by defense attorneys, weren't even part of the evidentiary record of the hearing? <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm just kind of puzzled by that. You didn't ask the question of Ms. Yardy, what did you tell your attorney before coming here? And then we could have dealt with privilege issues and whatever else. I would, I mean, I would agree with the court. It's not an evidence, but it was a, yeah. a, a, a statement by um, an officer of this court to the court during a hearing related to her testimony and um, how we were to proceed with her testimony in this hearing. Um, but I would, it's clear that what was represented as to why she um, would not uh, have, I guess, be an appropriate person to testify was that she had absolutely no knowledge of the romantic relationship. That was the basis of why her counsel was saying that she shouldn't have to testify. That so she then, so then under the that court. theory, if accepted, where did the incentive arise between Monday and Thursday for her to completely change things around? Where did the incentive arise? So she was, she was fighting so hard to avoid the, if we're, if we're going down that road you, you proposed, she was fighting to have, not to come in here and testify at all. And then she comes in here and testifies. Why would she have testified the way she did if she didn't want to testify so strongly? If we're, if we're going down this road of trying to just gauge her interests and, and these kind of things, I don't know if I'm quite following that theory. And I can appreciate that, but I would say it's it, the reason she didn't want to testify, I would submit to the court is because this is an incredibly public uh, forum um, where she would have to testify against a former friend and a former boss. Um, and I think the change, I wouldn't qualify it as an, as an incentive. What I would qualify is, is ultimately when she was forced to Emotive. testify, right, a motive um, and, and a bias as to why she testified in the manner in which she did. Um, when uh, asked by uh, Ms. Merchant as to the reasons for her leaving, um, she kind of danced around the issue. And then as Ms. Uh, uh, Cross whether she uh, resigned or forced to leave, she was fired. Um, she uh, came out and said she was given the choice. You can either resign, but either way you're leaving. You're fired or you can uh, resign uh, in a manner in which, um, you know, she wouldn't be uh, officially fired, uh, you know, and, and when she's trying to get future employment and things of that nature. Um, so I, I would submit to the court that there is absolutely no incentive. An incentive is not why Miss um, Yurdy's testimony changed or uh, the state would contend her testimony changed, but uh, it was the reason she testified the way she did was because of her bias uh, towards the DA, which gave her motive to um, what the state would contend is be less than honest before the court. And I would. But if we're going to draw inferences based on her fighting the subpoena, why would she have fought it if she had such a bias and wanted to say these untruths? Because she didn't want to come on national television and have to uh, be exposed to the things um, that, well, I, I don't know anybody who wants to testify uh, before 
uh, a court in a normal trial, a normal proceeding, but one of what I would qualify in this high profile of a nature where um, everybody uh, would be able to um, watch and learn as, what she has to say as it unfolds uh, in the courtroom. And I'd further submit to the court, there is reference to she left the DA's office in the text message that were submitted in, I believe, what is it, uh, Defense Exhibit 39, that it's because she released confidential information in the DA's office, from the DA's office that led to her firing that she wasn't. And I know I'm um, just because it's it's more conversational, which I appreciate. I know I might be getting you off script, so I don't want to use up all your time if you need to get through some other things. Um, next, uh, Terrence Bradley, and um, I believe the one thing that um, the state and defense counsel can agree on that he was uh, less than honest at, at, at times during uh, the proceeding and during um, his testimony. Um, he, when uh, Mr. Sadow, uh, why he was fired, he basically um, chalked it up to uh, a dispute between uh, partners um, in a business. Um, but when pressed by Ms. Cross, it was uh, clear that that wasn't the reason. And um, what I would submit to the court, what has been referenced by um, defense counsel um, as baffling as to why the state would go into to such uh, a topic area, uh, the state, as all uh, counsel has, uh, when appearing before the court, has a duty of candor. And... Uh, when Miss Cross uh, knew she was going to have to cross or, uh, Mr. Bradley, she knew he lied. And uh, she had a duty of candor to the court uh, in the state's opinion to expose that. Um, more importantly, it goes to his credibility. And uh, the statements that um, had been represented by defense counsel that he allegedly had made in the past. Um, so uh, it was important to um, bring that to the court's attention because when a witness is testifying, the court <laughs> is uh, assessing their credibility and determined to whether to believe um, the uh, veracity of the statements made by uh, the witness or, or not. Um, so that is, uh, that is the most important factor uh, when uh, determining whether somebody is uh, telling the truth or, or lie. Uh, furthermore, he... Uh, Reluctantly, um, when pressed, finally admitted that he uh, paid off the assault victim. Um, you know, eventually it got it started with an escrow account and led to uh, he did pay off uh, the the victim in that case. He testified over uh, a span of three days, and like I referenced to the court, he must have said fifteen times that he had no personal firsthand knowledge uh, as it relates to um, the relationship uh, between Miss Willis and uh, Mr. Wade. More importantly. Um, when pressed by uh, counsel, he could not pinpoint um, a time in which he knew that the relationship occurred. There were many instances in which he described that very well could have fallen within uh, the time frame that was testified and um, by both uh, Miss Willis, Willis and Mr. Wade as it relates to the relationship beginning uh, or, or transitioning uh, into dating uh, in March of 2022 and into um, uh, the end of the relationship in August uh, or the summer of uh, 2023. 
And as I referenced uh, to the court, uh, the statements that Mr. Bradley made, uh, the state would contend are inadmissible hearsay as it relates to the statements um, that uh, he was pressed and asked about um, what Mr. Wade told him, because Mr. Wade was never confronted with those statements. And in order for impeachment to be proper, he must be confronted with the specific statements um, that are alleged to have been made in order to impeach him. Again, um, Mr. Bradley had every motive to lie. Um, I, I believe uh, the text messages are, are, are kind of clear, are very clear as it relates to his di disdain uh, towards uh, Mr. Wade, um, which uh, due to the fact that you know he was uh, expelled or exiled from a, a thriving law practice, um, and um, it was clear that the, the practice and Mr. Wade sided with the alleged um, sexual assault victim, which is clear. Um, he assaulted her due to the fact that he paid her off. Uh, and uh, as I referenced uh, earlier, um, you know, Mr. Ms. Uh, Merchant represented to the court that Mr. Bradley had personal firsthand knowledge, uh, basically of, of, of it all, of everything, and that he would be able to basically be in a peaching machine. I think your honor referenced him as the star witness um, when uh, you were addressing uh, the claims that were made uh, by um, Ms. Cross in relations to um, Ms. Uh, uh, Merchant's representations to the court. And uh, what I would submit to the court is that all Mr. Uh, Bradley's representations as it relates to uh, whether uh, or when the relationship between uh, Ms. Willis and Mr. Wade began and um, whether they cohabitated, because that was a promise that was also made that he would be able to impeach um, the investigators as it relates to cohabitation was mere speculation, gossip, um, and this is your the honor. Question I got, the question I got, and we can correct this while we're all here together, is that they, Mr. Bradley directly overheard a statement from each of these individuals that they could be impeached with. Ms. Merchant, is that accurate? Directly overheard. Uh, which ones are we talking about? Uh, well, essentially, that, that kind of seemed to be all of them. Uh, you had said Alan, Bond, Young. And then the investigators, Hill, Green, and Ricks, could all be directly impeached by statements overheard by Mr. Bradley. Yes. And in reference to your question, the uh, unequivocal answer was yes. And uh, when your honor uh, is looking through the text messages, I would uh, submit to the court that the text messages don't even um, say or indicate uh, what was uh, represented to the court in relation to uh, the good faith basis um, for this motion to disqualify uh, as it relates to uh, the testimony of and the ability to uh, impeach witnesses through uh, Mr. Bradley. Um, what's been referenced uh, by uh, all counsel is uh, Mr. Bradley's assertion of uh, absolutely as it relates to uh, whether um, the relationship existed prior to uh, uh, Mr. Wade's hiring. And the question in itself involves speculation because it asks, do you think it started before she hired him? And he says, absolutely. He doesn't say he knows. He doesn't provide any context as to how he knows. And in these text messages and through his testimony with the court, his the source of his information um, was unclear. Uh, what I would what was what I would say to the court um, as to a lot of things. Um, other than the the one conversation that allegedly occurred uh, between um, Mr. Wade and Mr. Bradley. And I would submit to the court that that conversation never occurred. 
That, that would be the state's contention. Um, and how do we know that? We know that because that conversation um, was not confronted, or Mr. Wade was not confronted with that com uh, conversation. And that is evidence circumstantially, um, and I'd even say direct as to that conversation not existing because based on the representation made by defense counsel, it would be clear that that would be a conversation that would have been relayed to because it wasn't privileged, um, as your honor found, um, that would have been relayed to Ms. Merchant. And if that conversation happened, you better believe that would have been a conversation that defense counsel would have confronted Mr. Wade uh, with and against. And the reason they didn't do that was because it didn't exist. Uh, again, uh, you heard from uh, Mr. John uh, C. Floyd III, um, the district attorney father. As your honor heard, he was a well-respected uh, member of uh, the legal community uh, for over 40 years. Um, but the importance of his testimony was to provide the court with corroboration as it relates to um, the years leading up to the relationship uh, that uh, transitioned into uh, dating between uh, the district attorney and Mr. Wade. Uh, what he testified to is that he moved into her South Fulton home in 2019. The evidence of uh, his moving into that home at that time was his uh, Georgia driver's license, um, a government, uh, official government document. Um, he further testified that not only did uh, it wasn't that just Miss Willis and um, himself live at the South Fulton um, home, but that he often would see on uh, numerous occasions uh, the significant other of uh, Miss Willis that was not Mr. Uh, Wade. Uh, he referenced that uh, that person had a nickname of uh, Deuce and that he kept a lot of his belongings in the garage of Miss Willis. Um, he specifically said he kept a lot of his uh, uh, disc jockey equipment as, as he as is how he referred to it um, uh, when before the court. He uh, made very clear that he had never seen Mr. Wade at the South that is owned by Ms. Willis. Uh, he made clear that um, he lived uh, in that home with Ms. Willis and Ms. Willis alone, other than um, her two daughters um, that, who would occasionally visit that home until um, after February of 2021, but what uh, precipitated um, the uh, soon move uh, of Ms. Willis to uh, what I would reference as uh, safe houses uh, for her protection was uh, a, a protest that occurred before her home in February of 2021. Um, he then uh, expressed to the court that uh, Ms. Willis moved in the spring of 2021 and that due to these threats that uh, were taken very seriously, he had only seen his child uh, 13 times. Um, he said uh, in reference to uh, the questions uh, by defense counsel that um, were in a And I'm just going to be uh, straight up with the court. It was they were trying to make Miss Willis a liar. Um, what is how I would submit to the court in the sense that uh, she uh, testified that she was concerned for her safety and her family's safety, which included her father and um, her daughters, and that um, Mr. Uh, Floyd remaining in that home kind of uh, rebutted all of that, made it so it wasn't true. But he testified that 
he stayed in the home because it was a home that she had uh, put her blood, sweat and tears uh, in and uh, was able to buy. And that he stayed in the home because there were uh, there was constant officer presence. He told the court that he bought extra security equipment. He even went as far to tell the court that he slept in different rooms on different nights because he because he felt his safety was in such a, a concern. Uh, so I would submit to the court that, that line of questioning was uh, done in an attempt to uh, discredit Miss Willis, but failed. Um, would be this uh, what the state how the state would characterize it. Um, then he testified about um, the first time that he did meet Mr. Wade, which is in uh, 2023 uh, here uh, at the district attorney's office. And uh, he talked about um, how he kept cash in his home and why Miss Willis kept cash in his home. And what I would, uh, what the court should take note of is uh, the state didn't ask Mr. Um, Floyd about the cash in his home. That came out through the cross-examination of defense counsel. Um, so um, there was, a, a, I guess, an implication um, that Mr. Floyd only did so due through his preparation with the state and his uh, hearing and seeing um, news articles uh, and uh, clips uh, related to the testimony uh, that had occurred prior to him. But I would submit to the court that it's telling that that information came out through uh, questions that were asked by defense counsel, which gives credibility uh, to the statements that uh, were made. And he further explained as to why he um, taught his daughter to keep cash uh, in the home as it relates to financial independence and having a safety net. Um, it was further testified that he had multiple safes um, and that he gave Miss Willis uh, his first lockbox or her first lockbox um, for uh, situations uh, as she described um, when she was testifying. And what I wanna make clear is during Ms. Willis's testimony, it was pressed about the cash and where she kept it and did it follow her, where she laid her head um, and things of that nature, trying to further discredit uh, the practice uh, that she had as it relates to keeping cash in her home and why she was had the ability to pay cash to um, Mr. Wade and other people and for other uh, situations. And uh, what I, I would, what the court should, uh, take note of is that there was no evidence that controverted that at all. Where, where was the evidence that controverted Miss Willis's claim and practice of keeping cash in her home? There was none. In fact, the only evidence was is it was uh, substantiated through the testimony of her father, Mr. Floyd. Furthermore, uh, you heard from uh, Governor, uh, former Governor Roy Barnes, um, and uh, his testimony was significant and important because what I would, how I would phrase it, uh, Your Honor, is it debunks. Let me, let me, on this point, mm -hmm. and I think you might have had a more recent opportunity to review his testimony than I have. Mm -hmm. You say on the slide that she was the first choice to lead the prosecution. Was that actually his testimony, or was he just, was his testimony? that he was asked to come aboard. Did he use the words that he was asked to lead? Yes, uh, it would be, that, that's my recollection that he was asked to, to lead the prosecution. He was asked to um, take the, or he was asked to fill the position that Mr. Wade is currently in, which is the lead prosecutor. Um, it was said in that way as well as it relates to the testimony of Mr. Barnes. So I think it would be very clear. My recollection is that he said lead, but what I can submit to the court that I, I know he also said that he was asked to, to fill the, Wade is currently uh, filling uh, for the state of Georgia, which and is the at lead that time as special grand jury 
prosecutor, right? Yeah, the special, I guess, yeah, as the special prosecutor lead the investigation, which um, <coughs> led to the ultimate prosecution um, that we're here before your honor okay. uh, today. Um, he also indicated that the reason he turned that job down was because it didn't pay enough. He said he had mouths to feed uh, at his law firm and that he also didn't want uh, to uh, live the rest of his life with bodyguards because he had lived that for the, the years in which he was uh, the governor of Georgia. Uh, furthermore, um, he confirmed the qualifications uh, of Mr. Wade, um, which I, I still <laughs> find it quite interesting and confusing as to attacking uh, Mr. Wade's qualifications in that it's it's almost as if Miss, uh, uh, Mr. Roman's counsel is asking that the state put a prosecutor on the case that she sees to be more qualified to uh, attempt to convict her client. Um, it, it, it's an interesting uh, ar argument, and it's one that it, it makes no sense. Furthermore, um, if you were to believe the claims and allegations um, as it relates to Ms. Willis' personal stake in the prosecution, the receiving of financial uh, be uh, benefits uh, and gains, then you'd have to believe that she was also dating Roy Barnes, the former governor, and uh, Gay Banks, uh, in addition to Mr. Wade. Um, if she has this grand plan scheme uh, in order to um, uh, profit off of the prosecution of this case, because that's what they're saying. Or they're saying that she's uh, she telepathically or uh, prophetically uh, was able to um, know that Mr. Barnes and Mr. Banks would turn down the so she could then uh, hire Mr. Wade. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And it, it, it is it's desperate. It's in a desperate attempt to remove a prosecutor from a case with, for absolutely no reason, uh, Your Honor, other than harassment and embarrassment. Um, this slide, and we've been through uh, a lot of the testimony. And I should be clear there, it was not introduced in evidence that Mr. Banks turned her down, right? That's not, is that part, how's that part of the record? Well, uh, I'd ask the court to take judicial notices um, has been asked uh, repeatedly. Unless uh, the district attorney testified to that. I don't recall offhand. I will be frank with the court. I don't recall if uh, Ms. Okay. Uh, Willis testified to that exact fact, but I know that Mr. Banks represented that to the court uh, during uh, Monday's hearing as it relates to the allegations that were made. I understand Your Honor's position as it relates to that. I'm trying to make sure we, we know exactly what can is in the evidence and is not, but well, uh, regardless, uh, I think your, your point is made. I think it's in evidence of the, of the record as it relates to um, I guess the issues uh, that led up to uh, the actual hearing of this case. So uh, I understand your honor's position, um, but uh, it did come out uh, <laughs> several or during a proceeding um, that was prior to uh, the actual hearing. Um, this slide um, is just a, a chart showing kind of the testimony of both um, uh, the district attorney, uh, Ms. Willis and Mr. Wade as it relates to how they met um, how uh, or when uh, Mr. Wade became the special prosecutor, when their relationship evolved into romantic one, um, uh, talking about the trips uh, in which they took uh, after uh, their relationship uh, evolved into one uh, that uh, became romantic and um, when it ended. And what again, I would submit to the court is that those facts um, were consistent. And uh, the only uh, person who contradicted that um, the when the relationship started was uh, Miss Yerdy. And what I would bring to the court's attention 
is that it was represented to the court that Ms. Yurdy was a witness other than Mr. Bradley who could um, bring to the forefront this issue of cohabitation. And when pressed and when asked about it, Ms. Yurdy had absolutely no information as it relates to this alleged cohabitation. It was false. She said she had no information. She was asked about trips. She said she had no information about the trips. Yet, she's such a good friend that uh, Ms. Willis uh, confirmed each year uh, that Mr. Wade and her uh, continue to be in a relationship in 2020, 2021, until um, their relationship um, ended due to her uh, forced resignation and um, I guess splintering of their friendship, Your Honor. Uh, you, uh, I guess several exhibits obviously were uh, tendered in. Uh, most of them were um, exhibits that came from uh, the sealed uh, divorce of uh, uh, Mr. Wade and um, uh, Miss Jocelyn Wade, um, contracts for legal services, trip itineraries, and um, the text messages. Uh, and I would specifically reference uh, prior to today, the only text messages that were before your honor uh, were uh, uh, defense exhibits 26 and 27, uh, which um, it's the assertion of defense counsel that um, what those show is that Mr. Bradley uh, was in informate or was uh, had information as it relates to the relationship starting prior to um, March of 2022. And that's just false. Those text messages do not contain that. It, it does not pinpoint just as Mr. Bradley couldn't when the relationship actually started. And furthermore, you have the testimony and the evidence of the text messages that it was mere speculation. If you, as your honor reviews uh, the full chain of text messages, it is clearly Miss um, Merchant and Mr. Bradley um, going through what I can describe as nothing else other than a, a mere fishing expedition uh, between the two of them at first, because it's asked about certain members of the DA's office who had had have information um, as it relates just specifically for one, Miss Young. It is asked whether she would have information and he had no idea. He said he assumed he was speculating. And that is the same as, as each person that was subpoenaed uh, in reference uh, in the text messages. Um, all of that was speculation. And you know it was speculation because not a single one of them testified. That's telling. Because if it wasn't mere speculation, if it wasn't mere gossip, and if it wasn't mere conjecture, each one of those people who were uh, subpoenaed would have been called to testify, like uh, District Attorney Willis was, like uh, Mr. Wade was, in order to be confronted and then impeached by Mr. Bradley. Um, you've heard, uh, obviously, about uh, the phone records, and I have a maybe, because uh, whether it comes uh, into the purview of your honor as it relates to um, the determination that your honor is to make um, as it relates to uh, the disqualification of the district, district attorney. You also have the affidavit um, from uh, the employee who worked at the winery who confirmed that Ms. Willis uh, did, in fact, pay uh, in cash um, ups to uh, more than $400. Um, and I understand that it, this is part of the proffer of the state, but it's important because that is a witness who the state didn't go find. The state, that is a witness who went uh, to CNN in order to confirm what Ms. Willis um, testified to, further giving uh, her, her statements credibility and credence um, before the court. You heard about- uh, Well, before we move on from that one, other than the foundational concerns, uh, would you have a, a response to the proffer of the cell phone records? I have, uh, uh, 
I'll get to that now. It's going to get to it later. But I, I have several foundational concerns as it relates to the cell phone records. Um, I don't think I've ever, uh, as Mr. Sadow's uh, motion makes very clear, the state uses cell phone records routinely. And I would agree with that. We use them routinely, but we use them with an expert and they're always challenged. Right. So, like I said, in the interest of time, setting aside the foundational concerns. Oh, I thought you were asking about no, them. No, no, no. The focusing on the substance of them, assuming that it would be admissible in the guise that he's proffered. Well, what's the, I maybe you have that further up, but what's, what's the reaction to that? So, what I would say initially is that um, due to the fact that they were analyzed by someone who was a non-expert, um, the analyzation of those cell phone records um, were not uh, properly peer reviewed. They were not. Uh, it, it's clear um, from uh, the state's review that the, the normal uh, practices that are used uh, to check um, the use of which kind of data is being used um, in reference to the two specific dates. Um, I believe it's September 10th and 11th and November 29th and 30th. Uh, the uh, affidavit uh, that is used to say that Mr. Wade remains at Ms. Willis's or in the area of Hapeville, because um, again, during the hearing, the address um, for the um, Yurdy uh, condo never came out. It was just that it was the Hapeville condo. Uh, the actual phone number for Mr. Wade was never established. And the documents that were provided to the state as a, that were certified uh, business records did not have a, subs a subscriber page. So we have no idea that the number belongs to Mr. Wade. Now I understand your honor wants to look past the foundational issues and I, I can appreciate that, but the foundational uh, stuff is very important as it relates to the admissibility of the records. No, no, no doubt about that, but if, if somewhere, how they were able to survive those foundational concerns, do you have any, any reaction? Yes, I, I do. And I can, I will skip forward. So I don't, um, let's see. So what's interesting is that the records um, that were provided uh, were for, they start in January of 2021 and they go, uh, I believe it's to uh, November 30th, I think is what the, uh, of 2021, the span of the records. And you heard from all of the witnesses, including Ms. Yurdy, that Ms. Willis did not move into uh, the uh, Hateville address until um, April of 2021. That was the testimony from all of the witnesses, April of 2021, and that she lived in her South Fulton home uh, from uh, when she met Mr. Wade in October of 2019 up until when she had to move. And the assertion by defense counsel is that Mr. Wade and Ms. Willis began a relationship right after they met in October of 2019. What's interesting and what's telling is that Mr. Wade's handset doesn't once appear in anywhere near the area of her South Fulton home, but they're dating, but they're in a serious relationship. And if you were to believe what the defense counsel says, that they have been in a relationship from October of 2019 up until she moves, uh, in, uh, April of 2021. So, you know, a year and a half or so, but he never once enters the area of her home, but they want you to believe that that's a lie, which is why uh, counsel uh, for defense continued to press uh, district attorney Willis and Mr. Wade as to whether he had ever been to that South Fulton home. Well, this corroborates that that was not a lie, that he had never been to that home. And uh, it's more than suspect if you've been in a relationship as they claim for all this time, but never once, never once went to the house. 
So I think that's telling. Um, what I would also bring to the court's attention uh, in the state's uh, initial review of the records that uh, from January of 2021 to March of 2021, uh, those times when Ms. Willis did not live again at the hateful address, um, she didn't move there until April of 2021, that his uh, handset appears in that area 23 times. Sure. Why how do, how do you reconcile that with this testimony that was alluded to, I think, by uh, opposing counsel, the reasons he gave for being in the area? Well, would, would those line up to 23 times? I think, you know, I, I, well, I didn't well, give I, too I, many reasons for being there, right? Well, that's, well, I think that's the point. <clears throat> I would say, yes, that is the point. He, he referenced that that's an area that he, um, it was not uncommon for him to be in. And it clearly that is the case because Ms. Willis didn't live in that area. So again, it's further corroboration as to what <laughs> Mr. Wade indicated to the court. And uh, when, I guess, after Ms. Willis uh, moved into the condo in April of 2021, uh, they appeared 35 times. Now, I, I want to make clear to the court, uh, both Ms. Willis and Mr. Wade never denied that he had been to that condo before. Um, the, the, the specific testimony that was uh, elicited by Ms. Willis and Mr. Wade was that he, never, he had never laid his head, uh, was the direct quote, um, at, at that condo, which these records don't prove that he laid his head anywhere. If you were to believe uh, the uh, the analysis, or if you were to um, uh, if you were to give credence to uh, what the non-expert says as it relates to um, Mr. Wade's handset on uh, in September and November for the three to four hours that the phone uh, is alleged to have remained, um, that doesn't disprove anything that uh, that was testified by both um, Mr. Wade and District Attorney Willis. It was that he visited there. The specific hours of his of their visits was not something that uh, was uh, pursued during the questioning of both uh, of the parties. So um, what I would also submit to the court is that if you look at the days um, as it relates to uh, in September and the use, uh, the I guess the type of information that is used to make uh, the plots for the longitude and latitude of the handset is uh, data records. It's not voice records. It's not SMS or text messages. It's data records. And uh, it is not uncommon for an expert to testify as it relates specifically to AT&T records that that actual data record is uh, unreliable as it relates to the location of the handset due to the type of information that it is, that it's data. It's not the voice and the SMS, which I know your honor, as it's been referenced, is, uh, was a prosecutor, not uh, only here in this county, but um, for uh, the federal government where this kind of information is commonly used. So um, in the comments that were made by the court, it was clear that you uh, understood and understand the use of cell phone records as it relates to put somebody uh, in an area. And again, not in a specific location. Um, <coughs> I'd also bring to the court's attention as it relates to the validity of the affidavit and the analysis done by um, the expert uh, that was hired by um, Mr. Sadow is that not once does it reference uh, the uh, fact that AT&T records commonly have duplicate entries uh, within the call detail records. Um, that is something that is commonly seen and that is, that is something that is seen uh, in, in these records. And that is something that leads to um, the incorrect number of times that has been alleged that um, 
Miss uh, Willis and Mr. Wade were in communication um, through text and voicemail. And I'd also submit to the court that that number doesn't prove anything again, doesn't prove that anybody's in a relationship. Um, it, it proves that they were in communication with each other. And um, I, I think your honor can use your own life experience as it relates to people you work with or friends uh, that you're close with uh, and the number of times that you um, make calls um, to uh, any of those people. I can uh, submit to the court that um, I have a friend who I have been friends with for 15 years and she worked uh, in, in the office previously with me. And based on our professional relationship and our personal relationship, the friendship that we had uh, had and still have, that we talk uh, 30 times a day. So there's, and that doesn't mean we're in a relationship. So the, uh, the assertion that the number of times that uh, Miss uh, Willis and Mr. Wade have uh, spoken to each other, whether it's through text message or um, phone, it it's, has no validity as it relates to them being in a relationship. What I would submit to the court is that what was shown through all of the evidence was that uh, there's been a true cost to Miss Willis as it relates to her life that she had additional expenses that she had to uh, endure uh, in, because of her position in the sense that she told the court that she had a mortgage, but on top of that mortgage that, uh, and a house she uh, didn't live in anymore, she had to pay uh, for a safe house, um, that her home was vandalized, uh, and um, there were racial uh, epithets and uh, sexual bigotry that were spray painted onto her house. The uh, concern of uh, her safety and her life is something that, that was testified to. And the fact that this job has led to um, the isolation and separation of her from her family and friends, which was um, given credence and the were provided by her father, uh, Mr. Floyd, that he had only seen um, his daughter 13 times since all of these instances occurred. Um, the, the, state, the cruel nature of the statements and the falsehoods that for example, in these text messages that were purposefully leaked to the media as it relates to Ms. Willis's daughter, subjecting her, uh, her uh, position uh, in school that she flunked out of, of college, which isn't true, uh, which in fact she has graduated from an HBCU. But what's been leaked to the media is the fact that she um, flunked out of school and someone other than her father moved her, which again, the validity of which was never um, shown um and all the while um miss willis facing these costs has been able to continue to do the work unrelated to this case uh, which is shown in the fact that um, atlanta's murder rate and violent crime rates have decreased while she has been in office what was shown through the testimony of all of the witnesses and through the evidence um, that your honor heard was that there wasn't an actual conflict that the defense failed to provide any sort of actual conflict uh, in relation to uh, Miss Wade's relationship uh, that uh, transpired um, from uh, the relationship between her uh, and Mr. Wade, and that there was absolutely no evidence of a financial uh, benefit that she gained uh, as it relates to the prosecution um, of this case and the ultimate outcome of the case. Um, the corroboration of all of that is the things that your honor is very much aware um, that she could have, uh, I guess, 
financially benefited from uh, stretching out the case, uh, for lack of better words, by uh, the grand or the special grand jury recommended that 39 individuals be indicted. But uh, through her sifting through uh, the special grand jury's uh, report and all of the evidence with uh, the team uh, that indicted the case, uh, they only uh, went with uh, 19 of the defendants, which had she gone to 30, uh, gone with all 39, there's, uh, they're based on the defense counsel's assertions, um, would have given her the opportunity to certainly uh, find these uh, financial gains uh, that are claimed uh, through the allegations of defense counsel. More importantly, um, why would Ms. Willis repeatedly ask this court to set a trial date as soon as possible if her uh, motive um, in prosecuting this case was to continue to um, financially gain as alleged um, from the prosecution of this case? It, it doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense for a reason because it doesn't exist. More importantly, um, this office has several multiple RICO and uh, as well as uh, large scale cases like this one and much larger. Um, and they also have, uh, there's a lot of high profile prosecutions. If Miss Wade's or excuse me, Miss Willis's ultimate goal by hiring Mr. Wade was for her financial benefit, then she would put Mr. Wade on every single one of those cases. So she could uh, certainly uh, revel in um, uh, riches uh, and lavish lifestyle um, that has been referred to by defense counsel, um, which there's been absolutely no evidence of. The evidence was she stated a double tree in Napa, a double tree. I, I don't know that to be a, a lavish hotel. Um, most people, when they go to Napa, if they want to lavishly experience uh, Napa, stay at the Ritz Carlton, the Four Seasons, things of that nature, not a double tree. So the allegations and assertions that Miss Willis was living the lifestyle of the rich and the famous is a joke. <laughs> absolute joke. Uh, as it relates to um, what you heard uh, and the, the secondary issue uh, is the forensic misconduct. And um, for lack of better words, uh, what it has to be shown is that the statements that were made uh, by for he, here, Ms. Willis, related to the prosecution of the case and ultimately the guilt or innocence of um, the defendants. And we have none of those statements. There's been no evidence Nothing has been provided to your been provided to your honor as it relates to Ms. Willis's specific statements made about any of the defendants and in relation to the guilt or innocence of any of the defendants. I forget which defense counsel referenced the fact that she said she had a 95% conviction rate. Well, what Ms. Willis's job instill confidence uh, in the community as to how to how well she is doing as it relates to her constitutional duties. And that was exactly what was done when she referenced that she had a 95% conviction rate in the previous year um, that she was serving as a district attorney. More importantly, um, it's been uh, the allegations uh, about race and religion being uh, imputed in uh, her speech. Uh, and um, that, that those comments were directed at the defendants at this table. And if you listen to the speech, those comments are directed at two uh, elected or political officials, uh, I believe it was Marjorie uh, Taylor Green and Miss um, Bridget Thorne, who is uh, a member of the Fulton County Board of Commissioners. Here, she specifically used their names. I don't, I don't know that they. Um, and my knowledge is they're not <laughs> supposed to be sitting at the table, and I haven't seen them uh, in my um, work as it relates to uh, this case, uh, Your Honor. So uh, those allegations that Miss Willis committed 
uh, forensic misconduct are, again, there, there's no validity to them. There's no evidence of them um, as it relates to any of those comments, uh, which um, is, this is an issue that Judge McBurney um, has previously ruled on um, when uh, these same allegations were uh, alleged as it relates to extrajudicial statements uh, made by uh, Ms. Willis. Um, and it, it involved a, a statement that uh, the, the words fake electors uh, were said uh, by Ms. Willis. And he found there was absolutely no uh, conduct that was impermissible, impermissible as it relates to uh, forensic misconduct. <clears throat> and uh, I guess to drive home the point, um, at no point in any of the statements that were made uh, and that were that, that were that are alleged uh, here as it relates to the speech um, that she made um, at the church, um, at no point did she mention the guilt uh, or innocence of any of the defendants. Um, she, again, was merely responding to comments made by Marjorie Taylor Greene and Bridget Thorne, uh, two other political uh, officials, uh, therefore making her comments not even close in the realm of any sort of forensic misconduct. What I find interesting is that defense counsel um, wants to uh, make these allegations that Ms. Willis committed this forensic misconduct by the statements that she made uh, in this as two unrelated to this case public officials um, criticized the job that she was doing. And uh, I find the hypocrisy uh, interesting in the sense that we've had uh, video proffers released to the media by defense counsel, emails between uh, counsel released um, to the media by defense counsel, statements have been made uh, by defense counsel um, at, in relation to this case. We had the unredacted version of the cell phone records of Mr. Wade released to the media by defense counsel with his private and personal information um, causing um, the threat of harm to both Ms. Willett and Mr. Wade uh, to increase. We, uh, the most recent uh, instance was the text messages that Your Honor hadn't ruled on their admissibility um, prior to their uh, release. And it was uh, made clear during the hearings that the ability to uh, get those, uh, the full chain uh, was something that uh, they were unable to do, um, but they figured a way. And the minute they figured a way, uh, they released it, uh, the information to uh, the media simultaneously with turning it over to uh, the state and the court. For all the reasons uh, obviously stated uh, before your honor, um, that this motion should be, should be denied uh, because the legal requirements by, uh, that are required uh, in order for the district attorney to be disqualified have not been satisfied. The defendants have failed to raise any issue legally or factually to satisfy the legal standard um, for uh, disqualification. That's, they must show an actual conflict. They've been unable to show that the prosecution of this case was at all a result of political bias, which has been um, uh, accused or accusations have been made, as well as demonstrated that the prosecution of this case was motivated by any means or any way because of malicious prosecution. And they haven't been able to prove that this case was one of selected prosecution for political benefit or gain. All allegations that have been made during the course um, of uh, different hearings and the procedures uh, as it relates to this case. Um, what I would leave uh, the court with, kind of how uh, the state started uh, the argument, is that 
Courts have uh, been generally unreceptive, if not hostile, to attempts to disqualify prosecutors based on pervasive and institutional conflicts, which makes clear that the uh, burden, that the standard is very, very high that must be met in order for uh, a district, uh, an elected district attorney to be disqualified. And that burden, that actual conflict has not been shown. And more importantly, uh, in, in conjunction with that, there's been absolutely no evidence that the district attorney has benefited financially at all, but benefited financially in conjunction with any uh, outcome, whether it be now or uh, ultimately as it relates to the prosecution of this case. Uh, and because of all those reasons, Your Honor, we would respectfully request you deny defense counsel's uh, motion uh, to disqualify uh, the elected district attorney, uh, Ms. Fonnie Willis. All right. Thank you, Mr. Body. Your Honor, I think we have five minutes and 44 seconds. That's what it says. Mr. Cromwell, I'll leave it. I'll use it. Okay, handing it over. Understood. But Mr. Sadow, all yours. I'm going to do rebuttal, specific rebuttal. One, the state somehow makes an argument that we should have asked Mr. Wade questions about his relationship and his communications with Mr. Bradley when they objected over and over and over. Its counsel objected over and over and over, claiming that everything that Bradley was told by Wade was attorney-client privilege. Your Honor made determinations thereafter to Bradley. We didn't get the opportunity to call Mr. Wade back to the stand. So to claim that you can't impeach him because you didn't ask him when they objected to us asking him is a obviously is a false position to take as disingenuous as it can be. Now, if the court wants to open it up, we'll be more than happy to call Mr. Wade back to the stand. But as the record stands, there could be no um, confrontation of Mr. Wade when both his counsel and the state are arguing that it shouldn't be done. Second, let's, let's use a little common sense here. Forensic misconduct uh, received about two minutes worth of discussion. Uh, the rest of it is all on conflict. Forensic misconduct dealing with the way the state wants you to happen <laughs> is if you don't accuse someone or you don't say that someone's guilty. Uh, yeah, assuming you can impugn someone's character to the degree that constitutes forensic misconduct, why is that? I'm sorry, say that. Assuming you can impugn someone's character to the degree that it constitutes forensic misconduct. The state's primary position was that they weren't talking about you at the church. Right. And if you go listen to it and watch it, it starts off by saying, why does Commissioner Bridget Thorne and so many others? And then it refers to they attack him for being black. They attack him for not anyone else, just the attack the black man. They're not talking about Miss Thorne or Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're talking about us. And you know how everybody knows that? Because not a single story from the media reported anything other than Fonnie Willis accused the defense and defendants of being racist. Now here's the common sense part of this. If you follow the state's position on forensic misconduct, Fonnie Willis could all day long talk about race. She could say the defendants, I'm not saying they're guilty or not guilty, but they're racist. 
They're racist. They're racist. And according to the state's position on forensic misconduct, that wouldn't be a problem. Obviously, that makes no sense whatsoever. The issue here that we've dealt with on forensic misconduct, it's not simply the church speech. It's why she did it, how she did it, calculated and all the other things that we talked about with the testimony of Wade and Let's go to the relationship issues and the cell phones briefly. No one knew that there was a relationship between Wade and Willis, according to Wade and Willis. Not a soul was ever told that they were dating or that there was an intimate relationship ever. They concealed it from all parties, from daddy. Daddy didn't even know they had a relationship suggest that somehow in the beginning of uh, 2021, January to uh, uh, whatever it was in, into April, that they couldn't have met in Hapeville, they didn't meet anywhere that would allow the public to see them. That's the reason why they were meeting at Yertes, because no one else was ever there. Remember the testimony? Who else was there besides Mr. Wade and Ms. Willis. Both of them agreed. No one, no one ever went there except them. They didn't go to where daddy was in, in Ms. Willis's house because daddy was there and daddy would know. No other prosecutors knew. No one knows except who? The one person that knew was Bradley and Yerty. Yerty was best friend at that time of Ms. Willis and Bradley was the partner of Wade. Now, the only way that Wade can walk, I'm sorry, the only way that Bradley can walk away from the, I have very little time, so I'll, I'll skip that. Let's go to something, motive. That's a, an issue. Whose motive in this case is the strongest? Fonnie Willis, Nathan Wade. Because if they, if they testify truthfully on every point, what happens if the relationship started before November 1st? They get disqualified. Who has the best motive of anyone to lie? They do. Who has the most at stake to lie? They do. Who wants to stay on this case for whatever the financial reason may be? They do. And more. Thank you, Mr. Sena. There it is. All right. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I think has been very much made clear by the argument and the uh, made today is that there are several legal issues to sort through, several factual determinations that I have to make. Uh, and those are ones I can make at this moment. And so I will be taking uh, the time to make sure that I give this case the full consideration it's due. I hope to have an answer for everyone within the next two weeks. Uh, until that point, um, if there are any other issues that come up, council can reach out and uh, we'll have an order posted on the docket. Thank you all. We're off the record. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
So oh, this is some shit show. Dude, was that your music? I kept hearing music. Yeah. Like, I didn't know if that was your, you or if that was the kid, like the guy had his, uh, his like PowerPoint presentation had like corny, like had like music playing or something. I don't know. I couldn't figure it out. They, they played that when she entered clip. and left the courtroom. I was trying to clip it and put in just that one part and I can't download it because Y2Mate won't let me download music apparently. So I couldn't get it, but wow, that attorney for the, for for Wade's uh, excuse me, Willis's attorney is awful. I mean, what an <laughs> idiot! I mean, he just seemed like a complete. He seemed like a bigger idiot than she is. I mean, and she he was just sitting there yeah. bumbling and fumbling. He's like, well, you know, I mean, just draw from your own experiences. Like, think about all the times that you had booty calls in your life. And I mean, and one time when I was working with people, I called them all the time. I mean, just talking from my own experience. I mean, what an idiot! First of all, let me let me share this real quick. You know, they, he brought up that they're staying at the Doubletree in Napa Valley. It's actually a pretty damn nice hotel. I mean, when you open your back patio and there's a creek, uh, uh, like a, I don't know what you want to call that, a little pond with swans in it going around your, uh, your, your, um, your okay, property. We, we have so many things to actually oh, talk about and like mm -hmm. loads of rants and boosts. Yeah. Okay. So let's do the. Let's do the rants and maybe talk about it as we do yeah. the rants. Cause, cause, cause Perfect. I, I, I was thinking the same thing. A lot gotta, of this might come up get my, for I, the rants. I got to get my kids, yeah. Well, okay. Um, all right. There, Man, there's there's a lot to unpack from that, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, I'm sure it'll come up in the rants, and we can get to the whatever doesn't uh, after, it's afterwards. It's in my mind right now. <laughs> all right. Matt write Peterson. it down and take notes like a grown-up. It's in my head like a like a smart person. Well, then I'll tell you what my mother used to tell me. If it's important, you'll remember. Oh, Daniel. Magravator says, thanks so much for covering the trial. Badlands is the best. Thank you so much. Dot Thank Kenny, you. tacos. Sammy the yeah. Squirrel says, for CanCon's good health, we need y'all fighting the upcoming battles. Thank for you so much. dollar a day. Keeps the Taco Bell in my stomach. Black Coffee <laughs> says, hey, the judge and attorneys at the end of the, at the last, at the end of the day, last day's hearing, they mentioned they may cross-examine with the geodata. Um, yeah, he he basically just said that's not happening. At the yeah, end right. of the hearing, he said he has what he needs, and uh, he'll take it under advisement. He will rule in, what did he say, two weeks? Next few weeks that's is what he said. Like, yeah. He says uh, there are several legal issues that are before him. He needs to make several factual determinations, and he will take the time over the next few weeks to do so. I didn't expect to get a decision today, honestly. No, oh, definitely not. not. But we not. were, but we were wondering if they were going to reopen evidence to hear the to the to the rumble to the point of the rumble rant to hear the witness and mm. uh, additional cross examination of Wade and and all these other things. And it sounds like the judge is like, nah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of evidence, one of the points I want to make: I was so pissed off when when that uh, lisping guy was like. Oh, they did nothing to prove that Fanny uh, didn't have the cash at her house or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. The evidence submitted showed that that Wade paid for all those trips. The burden yeah. from then is on you to prove that Fanny paid him back. Yeah. You can't just say Fanny paid him back in cash and then say, oh, you gave us no proof that Fanny doesn't hold that cash. That was absurd. Absurd. Yeah. So I, I have a bunch of notes on that because the judge, th that was a moment where the judge stopped everything and said, aren't mm -hmm. we past this? 
Right. Aren't we past this being a theory that there is a personal relationship and that money has changed hands that has already been established? Um, he said the fact in question is the the uh, is is the the balance sheet. Right. What what is the have you paid him back? Was it done in cash? And the judge was looking the way I heard that was that the judge was looking during the while evidence was open and during their arguments, the judge was looking for them to prove that she paid him back in cash at least a few times. And the, and they didn't do that. So I thought that that was um, interesting. Uh, a body argued in that same vein that the lien on her house was irrelevant and that that was just an effort to slander Fanny and embarrass her to bring up the lien on her house. No, the lien on her house was relevant because she she had a lien on her house at the time that she said she had all these buckets of cash in her cash box and she's reimbursing people with large cash right. payments, but she has an outstanding lien on her house. That's right. why that was relevant. And she's doing it for trips and not, you know, something leisure and and instead of taking care of her. Stuff, yep. Right. Instead of her financial obligations. Stretcher says, you guys are the best. Badlands is the place to be. Thank you so much. Sjack 64. Oh, oh, fat fanny. Bam, a lamb going down. Fat fanny. Bam, a lamb. <laughs> Big nanny. Oh, one says, love your coverage. Gloria Mara. Happy March. Thanks for covering this clown show. Love you both. Yeah, we all missed on yesterday being the one day that only happens every four years. Um, yeah. I miss that. Mm. It's my wife's boss's birthday, so I wished him a happy 12th birthday because I think he's 62. <laughs> <laughs> I so. did bring up leap year on the brief yesterday. Oh. Kitsko says, nothing like emptying a load of compost while listening to the bullshit these people say. Thanks for the inspiration. I usually complain about this chore. I uh, thought you were talking about when you, when you first started reading that, I thought the compost was the uh, was a metaphor for Fanny's, uh, for Fanny's, Fanny's legal team. So I think it Dot Kenny says, hi, Ghost. Tacos for you, too. There you go. Thank you, Dot. Very nice Brian of you. Stillman became a monthly a supporter. Uh, Brian Stillman became a monthly supporter twice. You might want to check that out. Make sure it only counts once. Uh, the Bunny is a monthly supporter. Thank you so Yay. much. The Bunny yeah. twice. Must be a glitch on the, the API yeah. here. Wonder Brunch says, thanks for covering this. It's so great. You both are the best. Again, they're, they're <laughs> keeping so me out of it. Yeah, I love it. It's it's so it's great when we all sit together and watch an absolute shit show in a courtroom. I agree. <laughs> Ariel J7 says low low class high trash hula bula hula balu. Uh Fanny, you've been caught, girl. Sh -sh -sh shame on you. Too bad money can't buy moral and ethics because you need some. Uh horse <laughs> lover, thanks for covering this. S. Boucher, 3813, says, this is critical. Winning this case could crack open the entire lawfare scam that our judicial system has become. Yeah, a lot of corruption uh, being exposed right here. Seahawk Mom, 1987, just for shits and giggles, I screenshotted the PowerPoint slide at 246.09, and it is awesome. So many goodies on it from Maricopa to Epps to Moscow, et cetera. Have fun. Did I miss that one? We'll have to go back and check yeah, that. Yeah. Make a note of that, 246.09. Okay. Then she says, or he, he or she, I'm not going to assume gender, says, so looking at the screenshot of the Seahawk windows. Mom, it's definitely a she, for sure. Show, oh, yeah. How dare well, you? How dare you? Excuse me, 2024 men, can be, ghost. men can be mothers too, ghost. All right? Get that straight. Mm -hmm. uh, so looking at the screenshot it's of the windows. ma'am. 
show some buttes, Ryan Macias, Epps, gender disorder, how I win the chess game, vaccine data, Maricopa, Comer Biden. I, I feel like, Ash, pull it up. See if you can pull it up while we're doing this because I feel like we need to see this screenshot at 246. Where is it? 246 2.46, two hours, 46 minutes, and nine seconds. On the YouTube or on our show? On our show. Uh, probably on our show. So then that's like 15 minutes beforehand. Yeah. Loss is going to uh, be hard. Hogleg71 says, hope somebody get got gut punches that a-hole, that asshole from before. Thanks for the stream and keep doing what you're doing. All right. Two hours and what minutes? 24609. 24609. Yeah, but but we have oh, nine. We going, also have boost, Brian. We haven't been going for two two hours and forty six minutes, so you're right. It probably is on like the YouTube or whatever. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. There's another rant. Uh Brent Dwayne Cates, there were gang DAs placed about five to ten years before Sor Soros co-opted them all. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you, Jim. Badlands boost. Let's see. Special coverage. Just a little thank you for CanCon, Ash, and Gordon for covering Fanny's pantsing. You are the best. <laughs> Having just human Clay Perique and the chat gang is well worth putting up with the lifting boy, Thoy boys, who are repping Fanny's fat, fat. Love you guys. I think that's it for the. No, for look here. over. Look at March 1st over to the right. Uh -huh. There's four of them. I got it. Yeah. I just appreciate and you all. And then one Thank of them is tagged as why we vote too. All right. Uh, Gig GG with attitude says, I just appreciate you all. Thank you for all you do. Thank you so much. Yeah. Right Thank underneath you. that big nanny. one says, thank you, Ash and Brian. You rock. You two rock this court coverage. Um, why we vote CanCon. I sent this link to John as well. Please explain why you aren't talking about this military Intel has been watching the stealing of our elections for many years. We're using software, hammer and scorecard to manipulate the votes from the Secretary of State's office in real time. Other countries are involved around the world. Please watch seven short minutes and let's understand what's going on. Maybe get Mary Fanning or Mike Lindell on your show to talk seriously about this. And then there's a link. Brian, uh, why aren't you talking about absolute proof? I don't know. Is it because the Cause bill been came totally out three years ago? Right. Uh, this may yeah. be Trump. This may be why Trump says I caught them all. Hoping you watch and cover this conversation on your show. Love you guys. Thanks, Ashley. You too for all you do. Renee, our America 45. Uh, and I think Cameron scorecard, that's, that, that's something that's been thrown around for a long time. So, I mean, that's something to track for sure. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. on, on, if people haven't seen Absolute Proof, you should definitely check it out. It's over on Frank's Beach. It came out like early 2021, right? You know, yeah. I think before the inauguration. Um, and we, we, I think, uh, which was, who was the general that came out and endorsed that whole, th uh, McEnary? Oh, I remember. Yeah. His, uh, yeah. he appeared in a, he appeared in a video at Mike Lindell's little symposium and everyone got really fired well, he up. Gave it, it was like interviews. a devolution kind of video or whatever. Yeah. Like counter yeah well, he did. Video. Yeah. He gave additional videos at the time as well. The, the reason that I'm, you know, kind of like, oh, why aren't we talking about this? Cause we know so much more information now. Um, and we we have we have that absolute proof came out at a time when a lot of most of us, I think, in the in the public had no idea what was real. And now we know like absolute proof is a foundation, right, for so much more that we've learned um, over over the years as it relates to election integrity. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe that is what 
President Trump is referring to when he says we caught them all. I, I think that he's referring to um, much more significant than just elections, though, because yeah, every I, industry is corrupted. And I think that there's a record of that on the inside of the systems. And I think that's a big part of what he means by and, we caught them all. And I'll add this, like as outrageous as, as stealing the elections is, there are things that are going to piss people off a lot more than stolen elections. I mean, we get really fired up about this and this community gets really fired up about it. But like the average American, I mean, do they really care about politics? Many people don't. And as messed up as that is and backwards as it is, there are just other things that are just going to piss them off way more like their money being being watered down and inflated. Like that's going to piss them off way more, I think. I mean, it shouldn't. The election should be the number one thing, but I don't know if it really is. Like, we'll see. Brian, you're muted. Yeah, you're muted. Yeah, we'll probably read that one tonight on why we vote because it's more relevant to why we vote. Um, and I don't know how we missed that last why we vote unless it was No, it said Change March 1st on it. It came through today. Um, Change your, your, mic. your Change audio, your mic. yeah, your audio got messed up again. You surged again. Um, yep. While we're waiting for, for Brian to sound normal, um, it is clear that the the there is a question before the judge about what is the standard. Um, we heard the very first, it was uh, Ashley Merchant's husband. Um, he he was talking about how there's this is a first appearance. You know, uh, th this is the first time this specific set of circumstances is coming before the court. And they can point to different pieces and parts of this in case law, but this totality of circumstances is a novel legal situation. You heard the defense attorneys, President Trump's attorneys and so forth. Um, we heard them argue that it's the appearance of impropriety. Um, we heard the, the Fannie Willis side argue that there has to be an actual conflict. He had a lot of that um, on his PowerPoints. Uh, the standard of um, disqualification in Williams versus state that they cited was both a conflict of interest and forensic misconduct. We heard them argue for both of those standards in their closing. Um, we heard that the defense bring up Lee versus state and that the court did not err in not removing the prosecutor when there was no actual conflict of interest. So they're pushing hard for it to be you can't point to anything that's an actual, you know, conflict benefit. But the judge himself said the balance sheet is in question. And I don't think Fannie Willis's side provided any evidence to show that what um, is in the public record about payments from Wade to Willis, gifts, right, trips and whatnot, the gifts from Wade to Willis, she claims she paid them back. She provided no evidence of that. And that's a, that's a fact in question. Yeah, and that's a fact in question before the judge. Um, so that's interesting. Also, though, it's funny how uh, the 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 lispy guy was openly. I would agree with your. I would agree with your honor. I would agree with your honor. I think that the court is. You know, the judge is saying like, but wait a second, that's not what that ruling says. And I didn't mm -hmm. write down which ruling it was, which case, which case law they were referring to. But he, the the attorney's like, yeah, I don't agree with you, judge. That that's how you've. Um, that's interesting never, tactic. Not really a good look. Yeah. Interesting tactic to be like, yeah, you're actually wrong, judge. I'm I'm like some young lawyer and you're actually wrong. It's like, okay, you yeah. understand this all comes down to what this judge decides, not like what a jury decides. So <laughs> yeah, that so, part was pretty interesting. And, and also you don't cross your arms. I, I pointed this out when he did it. You don't cross your arms uh, in the middle of, of, uh, of, you know, 
giving your his little PowerPoint death by PowerPoint presentation. He he, yeah. he caught it once. He went like this, and immediately he was like this. And then later on, when he got flustered, he just went straight like this, and he was pacing back and forth. He got his ass pummeled, man. Might as well have just started stuck. He in his really thumb, did. Man. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. In the, um, I, I mentioned every time you guys talk, you and like Chris talk about what, and you too, Gordon, talk about what books you're reading. I'm always like, I'm reading the tra the practical trial handbook because I am. Um, but it, it came in very handy today because one of the things that you learn in, in you know, all this kind of trial part was there is the, the asking the one too many question, right? You're making the going too far and making too many arguments. And the, the moment that I thought that, came about for a body was when he um said it makes no sense that they are attacking mr wade's credentials that has nothing to do with this the fact that he has never prosecuted a felony that he has zero rico experience and that he was her lover is you know it, it's it, it's not it's not relevant that he uh doesn't have the credentials that was i think the moment where they what they went too far because that's a dumb argument it's a dumb mm. it's it, you know it's real it's like you're stretching and just trying to throw all the spaghetti at the wall and um i thought that hurt them yeah oh, and, and sorry sorry one more thing and then yeah. when they said if this was true should we have all these high profile cases she would have put him on all the cases if she was actually corrupt then then she would have put him on all the high profile cases which makes zero sense yeah, right. it doesn't, so, doesn't make any uh, sense. Yeah. 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 I mean, the appearance of impropriety, Kyle was saying it in the chat during the during the, the hearing is definitely a really, really good argument to make because it's the appearance, which is a much lower threshold than an actual yeah. like finding yeah. the actual conflict. But I would agree because we're talking about going after a, a former president. We're talking about elections. We're, we're talking about the government's faith in I mean, I mean, the people's faith in the government. So I do think that that actually does matter, like the appearance of impropriety um, and the fact that like we're talking about disqualifying a prosecutor for an unprecedented case. Yeah. And the fact that there's no precedent here does give the judge basically leeway to do like he's going to set case law here. So there's a lot of pressure on him to get this right. Um, and I just think the conservative move, which a lot of judges are going to do here because they don't want because if he let if he lets Fanny sit on this and she prosecutes and she wins and then it gets overturned on appeal because he let her go that's a strike on his record so in order to like I like a like self-interest i know people are going to accuse me of being corrupt or whatever but self-interest the conservative move is to take her off and let another lawyer come in and uh, prosecute the case yeah i think that's right um brian did you have anything to add to that not to that specifically i'm trying to find this um this slide now this slide has my my interest like peaked uh, I will say they made the argument that I said they were going to make on Thursday about uh, the absolutely text from Bradley um, yeah. when they said, you know, do you think when do you think the uh, relationship began? And I, I made that argument on Thursday. Um, yeah, you and did. And and you'll notice in their screen, in their PowerPoint, <clears throat> excuse me, in their PowerPoint, they cut off the next text, right? So it's, when do you think their relationship started? Uh, or do you think it, it started before? Absolutely, it started when is the very next text. And you can see that they cut that off because it hurts the argument that they were making about the absolutely. 
Yeah, but if he was if he was intelligent enough to come up with the that think thing, they would have been able to say, well, he he made that statement in the context of when when he thought it started. Still, that's that's yeah. what he would have argued. I, I I think it's a shit argument. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I don't think the judge is going to buy it. Um, but that's mm. that's I I had a feeling that that's where they would go with that. So I I do think a body made a strong point, and I think this might end up hurting the defense team, uh, President Trump's side of things, the text messages being leaked. There was a whole lot of back and forth going back to the beginning of this hearing about her being able to get her text messages over to them so they could see the whole record. On the la- At the end of the last hearing, they said, um, you know, we'll figure out a way to get it to you. And what we heard Mr. Abadi say in his closing and his, his summation is that they were leaked simultaneously with them being given to us. That hurts, that, that hurts uh, the defense. Yeah. If that's it looks true, like yeah. an abuse of the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And it, it kind of undermines their argument about her going to the church and making the church speech where she's like basically calling him, calling him guilty. So it's kind of, it does kind of undermine that. Um, I will say, because I I, I got to jump off here in a minute to get my kids. Um, I'm not saying we have to stop, but I, but I got to leave. Um, I will just say kind of like in like summary, obviously, if we were just going on purely the closing arguments, uh, the defense team crushed it. They were amazing. Um, multiple people. I don't know who the last guy's name was, was who he went or second to last. He crushed it. Sadow was awesome. They all did a really, really good job. All of them, I think, really – like brought something to the table. Um, obviously, uh, Fanny's lawyers were terrible. Um, you could really tell the difference between like the way the judge was speaking to the defense and the way he was speaking to them. He was running them both through the same exercises where he's trying to like flush out their arguments. He's questioning what they're saying, explain this more. Um, but with the with Fanny's uh, attorney, he really was getting more confrontational with them and saying, well, I disagree with you, where he wasn't really doing that as much with the defense. He was just saying, hey, explain this a little more. What about materiality? Should we talk about materiality? Is that what you're trying to do? Um, where with Fanny's team, he was just straight up kind of shutting him down and saying, well, I'm not going there. This is, you know, silly, et cetera, with certain specific points. So it just seemed to me that uh, Fanny's team did not seem prepared for the closing arguments. It was very unimpressive, very unconvincing. It's not going to ultimately come down to that, although I will say that that's going to be a huge feather in the defense team's cap. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how this all comes out, uh, uh, flushes out. But even if Fanny gets left on the case, I mean, like say we went about the judge, like whatever. But if she gets left on the case, she's an idiot. And her prosecuting this case is going to be like high value entertainment. And I don't think she's going to be able to win because she's just proven to be so incompetent. Um, but I do expect her to be taken off. If she's not taken off, that is going to raise a huge red flag. Um, yeah. uh, so remote viewer 33 says it's not a leak if they simultaneously release the text to both parties. The leaks is not uh, going to both parties. First of all, it looks like a obstruction before Wednesday. Right. Because they, they, it's, oh, he has an Android phone and I have an iPhone. iPhone. There's nothing I can do. Right. That's what we saw for for parts one through three. And then they finally get the full record of the text to the other party and it gets released to the public and to the journalists. That's what we're talking about with leaks. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and and the one last thing I'll say is when Sadow was given his last remark there, when he was given the uh, the rebuttal, um, he started talking about, you know, how the father didn't know and how nobody knew uh about their relationship 
uh, except for Bradley and Yerti. And um, the, the the interesting part about that is that kind of plays into my theory that somebody is intentionally sabotaging this case from the inside. And like we talked about at the start of the show, there's a plethora of people and, and associations in the same building as, as Fanny uh, in, in Piedmont on Piedmont Avenue that could have an interest in doing that. And a lot of them have DNC operative connections, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's uh, uh, Evans or uh, Pav, what's his name? Pavliavi. Um, you know, between those three, I mean, you got a lot of people that could have intentionally brought this thing down. Fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Gordon, I know you've got to run, but I, I'm glad that you brought up the church speech because that was the the last thing that I had written down that I wanted to talk about is that church speech. Um, that came up, you know, quite a bit in terms of instead of responding to the motion, to the defendant's motion in the case, everybody was wondering, even the view, the ladies on the view, if you can call them ladies, um, they were they were pissed at Fanny about this the fact that she didn't she didn't respond to the legal uh filings she went to a you know historic black church and basically gave you know a campaign style speech but it is it you know i think the argument was made and i think it you know at least from a perception appearance of standpoint holds up it's tainting the jury pool yeah. Yeah. Well, and it also supports the allegation that this whole thing is political. It's like this is all is a political prosecution yeah. when you're going out and giving campaign speeches about this and, and not responding to court filings. Um, yeah, I mean, that definitely makes it supports the allegation that it's purely political. So, um, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry that she needs to be removed. We'll see what happens um, two weeks from now. Um, I do also think a big part of this is is. The judge laying out the case law because because there's going to be details in here like the devil's in the details here and kyle's going to be probably i'm sure digging into this once it does happen but that's going to be the precedent i think for a lot of things moving forward um and just not just removing fanny but here are the reasons that i removed her here are all the reasons why we need to, we need to consider this moving forward and every single thing every single time this happens moving forward after this this case is going to be referenced by every single attorney when it comes to this situation of, um, of, of impropriety and uh, prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, so it is important that the judge really gets it right and lays out a really strong legal argument beyond just removing her from the case. I, wonder I don't know that we'll get that. I yeah, hope we I do. Like I don't know if we will, but I hope yeah. we do. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I think that's ideal, right? But that's, that would be, mm -hmm. that would be highly um, out of the norm, I think. I wonder how many uh, money laundering convictions are going to get overturned based on, you know, the logic that they're using to justify what Fanny and Nathan Wade did. And they don't even have the burden of beyond a reasonable doubt here. Like this just is the, the appearance of a conflict of interest. And, and so like if, if I if I'm accused of money laundering right now and that was my argument is that, you know, I, I gave them cash and well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty interesting. It's a, it's a novel approach right there, but well, all right. We'll move on. Um, two, two other things. One, we did get some more rumble rants, so we need to go through those. Um, the last thing I'll say is I don't know if it was Cromwell or McDougal, but at the end of the first summation, right, they did, they did rebuttal. Sadow did rebuttal after theirs, but at the end of the first, you know, when they, when they did their summation, um, it was either Cromwell or McDougal that said, if this is tolerated, we will get more of it. 
And I thought that that was a very strong statement based on yep. what we've seen, all this chaos and this really gross looking behavior and all this kind of stuff. If, And I think it's spot on. If this is allowed yep. to be okay in a novel legal RICO case targeting a former president and people who were engaging in First Amendment protected behavior, this is allowed to go forward. We're going to see a hell of a lot more of it. And that's not good for anybody. That's a really, really good point. And just from private conversations with lawyers and I haven't spoken to them about this kind of stuff in years, but the guys who operate in this space, like judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, stuff, they are not political. They don't like politics. They don't like that, that half of it. And so to that point, if we start to see more of this, that's dragging politics into the courtroom, which they're not going to like, like those guys do not like politics. They don't like that kind of stuff, which is why they don't, they don't want to hear about corruption and they don't want to hear about yeah. the system being flawed. It's like, if you want to fix it, go talk to your lawmaker. I'm not the guy who writes the law. And people in the chat were saying like, well, the judge needs, needs to do the right thing. If we establish that, Hey judge, we need you to rule on this based on your personal concept of right and wrong. That's a very, very dangerous precedent to set because everyone's yeah. concept of right and wrong is different. We want them following the law. And then we want the law to be written in a way that is right and wrong. We want to set the right and wrong standard in the way the law is written. And then we want judges to follow the law, not follow their quote unquote heart. So it's, yeah. it's important. That mind. Uh, um, I would like to personally thank Seahawk mom for completely derailing Brian's attention for the past 15 I'm minutes. Thanks so much for that. I'm completely <laughs> like. I'm wondering what the, I, I want to know the context in which Maricopa County Ray Epps and all that other stuff gets brought into this PowerPoint. And I'm completely and totally distracted. I 100% apologize, guys. Put in the chat. I do have to jump off. I'm sorry, guys. But uh, no, thanks for good. watching, everyone. Got to go get the kids. Um, everyone have all a good right. day. All right, we're gonna end it right here in just a second. We'll go through these. We gotta hit those last rants. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, hit, hit the rants. I'll stick around for those. All right, X Deadhead. I'm gonna start from the bottom up. False flags happen. Who leaked the text? Who scrawled on the house? Yep. RBB 1976. The chat was awesome. Badlands Media is the best. Most thorough coverage of these crazy times. You all are amazing and elevate smart assery. Hell yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Try. Seahawks mom says the window image, the windows image popping up screams ghost in the machine. Now I really want to know. Oh, I remember <laughs> seeing that windows thing pop up, but I wasn't paying attention to what was on the screen behind it. Uh, so really you, I'd say you find that and then we'll do it on why we vote. Look at it. What's really neat is Badlands has shown five down and eight over on the screen. Hmm. So Badlands is on there too. What? What is this screenshot? I need right, we're this gonna screenshot. To, we're going to have to figure this out. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. And when uh, we this. Real Deacon David said, blessings, great job. Seahawk, okay, screenshot is right after the Terrence Bradley disgruntled, vengeful speculation slide. The time is going to change, but there's a window sh shot that opens up that has some neat tidbits on it. Somebody mm. find this. The Terrence Bradley uh, uh, disgruntled, yeah. vengeful speculation. Come on, Anons. Do, do your thing, Anons. Be autistic. All right, H2O this Maven. This is during Hold today's hearing, right? Because I saw that message before about Bradley, and Bradley wasn't on the stand today. So we're looking at today's show for the screen for the image, correct? Yeah. Today's yeah, 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 yeah. It's the screenshot. It's this PowerPoint slide that would be discrediting Bradley, calling mm -hmm. him vengeful, spiteful, and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, H2O Maven says, "Holy f and sh shit show." F got destroyed and lost his lisp. He, did he? He lost his lisp in the middle of the thing? I didn't catch that. I, I didn't catch that either, but yeah. maybe. 
two weeks biggest check has it uh brent Dwayne cates welcome brent uh these hey, were gang da's placed about five to ten years before soros co-opted them all hmm. um and then hog i think we read hog legs hope somebody got gut got gut punches that asshole from before thanks for the stream and keep doing what you're doing yeah i think we read that one all right awesome. let me all right i gotta run y'all all right gordon. Bye, thanks gordon. Gordon. appreciate it man so right, she I'm, said negative 114 so i pulled that up but i don't see this it's definitely about bradley it's definitely about impeachment but i don't see the all right let's let's just let's just do this here we go was it like something that just popped up did they say before or after Let's put it on uh, double speed. Maybe it was like a like a, a glitch or something. No, Let's I see. remember seeing when the Windows thing popped up. If Badlands was on that dude's desktop, I definitely want to see that. Okay, that's not it, right? No. It's around that point, though, I think. I don't know if it's before or after, but it's around that point. And there's right. Anna Cross. We haven't seen her since she uh, got privilege reopened. Seahawk Mom is saying yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I'm going. I'm going. Do we get a yeah, flash here? Come on. This is like the guy with no shorts. It's after this, some folks are saying. I know, but I've got it on like double speed. It's like 1.75. <laughs> Come on. Okay, no. Are we still going after this? Speed it up even more. Come on. No, we can't handle lisp face again, says Missy Brash. Oh, I've got it muted. It's we got, we, got, we got it muted. Don't worry. Let's see, let's see what he sounds like at double speed. And I would submit to the court that conversation never occurred. That, that would be the state's intention. Um, and how do we know that? We know that because that conversation um, was not confronted. Our Mr. Wade was not confronted with that com conversation. And that is evidence circumstantially. Um, and I'd even say direct as to that conversation non-existent. Because basically... Uh, this is where he... This is this is where they listen to Badlands. Maybe this is maybe this is where Badlands popped up five down and eight over because they heard us on Thursday talking about this. Maybe. And they're like, oh, that guy actually made a really good point. I'm gonna use that. <laughs> <laughs> that that Brian Lupo should be arguing for us. That CanCon guy. All right, come on. Are we seeing Can you tell anything? Us if we're in the right spot, of I know. Video? Like, give us, give us a heads up. You're you're 20 seconds behind, but are we going in the right direction? <laughs> or, I mean, you could just send it to me on Twitter too. Like, yeah, on X. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Um, so first of all, everybody, please smash the thumb. Second of all, we get all the time requests. You guys need to clip this moment. You guys need to clip that moment. Anybody can clip anything on their phone, guys. You got the yep. old screen recording option. You just pop that thing on. Turn, make sure your do not disturb is on so you don't get the uh, the drop downs. And then uh, turn your screen record on and record the thing. You can go into your photos, edit the start and end times, and you can crop the video. You can do all sorts of stuff. So uh, you know it's not you don't you don't need any sort of advanced technology to make a clip. Everybody, we you know we do the. You guys are our street team. We are the news now. You guys can all can all clip it. And then if you share it on X more often and you tag us more often than yep. not, we're going to retweet it. Heck yeah. All right. I, I'm going to go through 
two more slides and then I'm out of here. Yeah. I'll find yeah, it. We'll talk make about it, it like five times. Yeah, we can talk about it on why we vote. Why we vote, yeah. Come on. The lisping guy. Let's she go. equals financial independence and safety net. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was so ridiculous. Ridiculous when he's like, you didn't prove that Fanny doesn't keep that much cash. No, bitch. You're supposed to prove that Fanny paid it back. You can't like that was their rebuttal, you know, was, oh, yeah, you know, we we uh, we, we paid it back in cash. Do you have any proof of that? No, but you don't have any proof that Fanny doesn't keep that cash in her house. Like what? Yeah, it's I not was, relevant. Yeah, well, it's not it's not relevant, but you, you got a step that you have to overcome before you can make that argument. Like you got to prove <laughs> that it was paid back. Dviz81818. She got a discount at hotel with homo code Shapiro. <laughs> well, then they got the affidavit from the winery person. I can't help yeah. but wonder how much Pelosi has influence. And, you know, the, the Democratic swamp has their roots in that whole area of, of California. I mean, you look at what Pelosi did when he got in the car accident with the man in the car. The, the young man in the car, and we don't know who that person is, but somebody showed up and got him out of there for Paul. Remember that Police story? showed up. Police yeah. showed up. Well, we're like, hey, you guys, oh, no, okay, we're just going to keep going. Yeah, oh, and off Paul Pelosi? I don't want any part of that. That was nuts, man. Off-duty cop shows up, and he's like, hey, you guys okay? Yeah, all right, let me get this guy out of here for you. Just leaves him there. Right in the around this part, if I recall correctly. Just leaves him in the dark. Oh my gosh, this freaking trolls are driving me nuts today. All right, this better have a good payoff. This is the last slide. <laughs> EC says about uh, Paul Pelosi, he was a young man, but definitely not a gay prostitute. No, 100% not a gay prostitute. Definitely not. Just like the guy in his uh, de pap. Just like mm. de pap wasn't a gay prostitute. Stop, Hamilton. It's just easy for a, a 38 year old hemp maker to break into the Speaker of the House's home with nobody catching on and stay there for like three hours, keeping him. Yeah. N Willis had to be dating Governor Barnes and Gabe Banks in addition to Wade, or Willis telepathically knew her first two choices. These guys' arguments are so insulting. So bad. Yeah. You know you know what like I really trying to lose Well, you know? Yeah. Right. But you know, what was really interesting about that whole argument is to me, like the whole time I'm listening to this guy rebut all that. The only thing I could think is this is how pathetic our legal system is now that this guy thinks that this is a good argument to make, you know? Yeah. Oh, well, you didn't prove it beyond a shadow of the doubt. You have to have a video. You have to have their sex tape. And not only do you have to, not <laughs> God, no. Not only do you have to have their sex tape, they have to be holding a newspaper with the date on it. And not only do they have to be holding a newspaper with the date on it, we need an official timestamp in the top right-hand corner in Zulu time, of course. Like, it's absurd, man. That, that, was, yeah. that is the demise of our legal system right there. I post, yeah, okay. I also, this is one, one moment we didn't mention uh, earlier when Gordon was on, but when um, he was talking about oh shoot i think i just lost it my my brain is uh right oh okay, there what, what's that what's that what's that that's it oh dude that's my desktop that's not uh, theirs 
All right. Well, that's then, mine. For some reason, my desktop went That was went a lot away. of wasted time. <laughs> we wasted all that time to find my desktop. That's what my, Behizzy gives me shit all the time because that's what my desktop looks like. Yeah, it's terrible. Well, I have that's to download all. anxiety just looking at it. When I have when I write an article for Gateway, I have to download a, you know a, a photo to use and photos to put into it and everything, and so I just save it to my desktop. And I have the nastiest desktop. So, yeah, I, man, I was all excited. I thought that was like that was like their end or something. So, yeah, if you want to go through, you can see all my super super secret files, all the images and PDFs that I download. All right, that's that all I got. Explains why Badlands was on there. All right, everybody, we'll be back in uh, what two and a half hours. Uh, yep, right. two and a half hours. Awesome. All right, we'll see you guys. Uh, hold on, hold oh, on, hit, hold on. Hit, hit, hit the thumb. Hit the thumb. Hold on, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta do. What? All right, welcome to special event coverage with Ash, and uh, I don't have any powers in this streamyard. So Brian has to end the show and I can't even end, I don't even have an end show button. And so, um, I don't know what's, what's happening if he just, he probably just, uh, just, just crashed or surged again. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't, I can't put tunes on. I know I have zero powers in this stream yard, um, but I am sure that he can end the show you, whenever he fixes. You just kick me out of the stream? No, I have no powers in this stream yard. I know. I, know. I accidentally kicked myself out because I was going to uh, share our exit video for the, for the, for the, uh, the stream. So, all right, guys, we'll see you guys in two um, and a half hours. Yeah, we'll see you guys tonight. I'm doing it. I've never seen you looking so lovely as you did tonight. I've never seen you shine so bright. Mm -hmm. There's nobody here It's just you and me It's where I want to be But I hardly know This beauty by my side Never forget Thank you so much for joining us and don't forget to hit the thumbs up on this video. And a special thank you to all of our advertising partners. Please remember to shift your dollars to support those businesses that support Badlands Media.